509. Warning. Access restricted. Please submit to DNA. Verification. Processing. Verification complete. Access granted. Welcome. Hello and welcome to the Monitor Room at the Christian Geek Central Podcast, a biblical examination and celebration of geekery and geek entertainment, as well as the official podcast of ChristianGeekCentral.com. I'm Peter Franson from Spirit Blade Productions, producing entertainment and resources to hopefully equip, encourage, and inspire Christian geeks like you and me to live increasingly for Christ, experiencing the life-giving freedom and purpose he has made us for. For more information about Spirit Blade Productions, you can check out spiritblade.com. On the show today, it's a huge one. I'm sharing all of my reactions to the various big video game events and announcements of E3 2018, as well as my top 10 games featured there throughout the week. There is no time to waste. Let's get to it. Nice. Another achievement unlocked. I bet I got more achievements than anybody I know. Yes, sitting in front of a video game for five hours a day is quite an achievement. See, this is why I don't like talking to you. Then why don't you spend more time with real people? Because real people don't respond to console commands. Wow, Peter. You unlocked yet another achievement. You must have more achievements than anyone you know. Behold, you are great, and greatly to be praised. Yeah, better. E3 2018 is now upon us, and uh, we're kicking it off with the EA press conference, which I was not especially looking forward to. I'm kind of glad it's the first one, uh, because I, I, I think I would just lose energy and interest and might be tempted to might have been tempted to skip out on it uh, if it had been uh, much later but anyway um yeah so i i'm basically going to be reacting to the ea press conference based on my own gaming preferences with some additional reactions from a biblical perspective so i probably won't represent uh, a number of different gaming preferences out there. I'm just going to share my own reactions. I I had some very jaded predictions for EA's press event, along with a short wish list. Um, let me just go over that briefly. Uh, my predictions, man, <laughs> two out of three did not come did not come true. First, I I said they will feature more sports and cars and sports cars. Um, I kind of broke up my wish list. If you watched my uh, video where I shared my wish list and jaded predictions, I kind of broke them up a little bit more exacting into uh, you know numbers. So they will feature more sports and cars and sports cars. Uh, no, that was not completely accurate. They did feature more sports, but not more cars and not not more sports cars. <laughs> Number two, uh, I said that they would say things not worth believing while wearing tailored suits. Well. I do think they said things not worth believing, but they weren't wearing tailored suits. I went back and watched the whole thing again. There wasn't a single tailored suit on that stage. So, 
Interesting. Um, I'll comment on that in a little bit. And then my third prediction, the upcoming Bioware game Anthem will make it even more clear that the studio is done making single-player RPGs in favor of MMO shooty blasty jumpy games. And I believe that prediction did come true for me. I'll talk about that more and why that is later on. My two wishes, neither of which were granted, uh, were first that they would do something during the conference in their actions, not just in their words, but they would do something that would show they're moving toward consumer-friendly practices, something that could be tested and verified by uh, games media people and commentators and stuff over the course of the weekend, so that by the end, the verdict would be out all over the place on the internet. Hey, yes, EA has done something right now that's consumer-friendly. They've changed their monetization scheme for, you know, their currently three top games out there, you know, or whatever. Um, they didn't do that. They did, I didn't think they would, <laughs> but uh, would have been nice. And the second wish that didn't come true is for them to somehow make me believe that they still care about True Blue single-player RPG experiences for long-time single-player RPG fans. That definitely did not come true. I'll talk about why when I get to my thoughts on Anthem. They did make some changes that had the appearance of being more personal and down-to-earth or quote-unquote authentic or whatever. Uh, they had... Uh, Andrea Renee do the hosting on the stage and I've begun to follow some of her work on uh, places like What's Good Games and uh, Kind of Funny Games and, and I find her endearing and personable and so I, I see totally why they would want her to be kind of the glue that held the event together. Um, there were no suits. They had people even wearing flannel and uh, sweaters and stuff like that. There was an acknowledgement that Star Wars Battlefront 2, uh, the, the launch of that game was disappointing and that they needed to make some major changes. Uh, they continued to have a spotlight on indie games they uh, showed their continual support and involvement with charities there were two instances of emphasizing that a game will have no loot boxes or purchasable gameplay advantages so they were doing these things that uh, I think maybe were intended to you know help them come across as more personable and down-to-earth the problem is none of these things provided me with a right now demonstration through deeds that they are actually uh, moving toward consumer friendly practices as opposed to just saying they are I mean sure loot boxes may be gone we can say no more loot boxes no more loot boxes okay well great fine but what what will the monetization model be you know there who knows what the next thing will be you know loot boxes as a buzzword is just like that's got crap all over it nobody's going to want to touch that and so people have uh, all over the place have been backing off of that but come on they're going to have some kind of monetization scheme and so i want to know what are the specifics of that and are is it is this is their new scheme their new model still going to come across as manipulative or trying to basically just be sneaky <laughs> in some way um I want to know what the new model is. That's what's really going to to help me see that there's a positive change toward consumer-friendly practices. Um, so many, in general, let me say this, in general, the changes toward a more personal and grounded presentation for this show felt cosmetic to me, felt superficial. Um, I, I think that EA wants to have a better relationship with their players, but I... I don't know that that desire goes beyond uh, a desire to, you know, to have their players spend money, you know, on them, you know, because of course, you know, if they have a bad, if they have a bad relationship with their players, then of course players aren't going to spend money uh, on their games and stuff. So 
I just, uh, I, yeah, I, I don't know exactly what it would take to really feel like they're really letting it all hang out and just being authentic. Probably just doing something different than a stage presentation. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, so many things about this event still felt very scripted and controlled and guarded to me. Very selective in the information that was being put out there. Um, I saw some cool-looking games, but I didn't see or hear anything that makes me the least bit willing to keep uh, what EA is doing on my radar. Uh, maybe in the coming year there'll be some some deeds, some actions actually from them that start building credit toward trust in in my mind. But uh, right now I'm so hands off and beyond uninterested uh, in in what they say or do for now. As for Anthem, I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about that. That was the game uh, of the ones I knew they were going to be talking about that had at least some potential to surprise me and in ways that would appeal to me. You know. Um, I really only wanted to know what it would be like for someone like me who avoids multiplayer to play Anthem. Unsurprisingly, unfortunately, the single-player potential for Anthem seems barely there. They said that the base you go back to between missions is where the single-player story happens... And the quests are all intended, basically, to be multiplayer. Going solo is possible, but they made it clear that it's also going to be harder. And that they want people who normally don't play multiplayer games to at least give it a try. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's sad. (laughs) As far as my gaming preferences go, I'm thinking, why waste time creating a single-player story for me to experience at the base when I'm still forced to go and look for other people to play with if I don't want to have a more difficult experience? I'm just not, for multiple reasons that I won't get into, I'm just not interested in uh, in multiplayer games, um, especially not multiplayer games online. Uh, BioWare once made some of my favorite RPGs, and I wanted to see hope today that they will still give at least equal priority to the single-player experience in the future. I get that multiplayer is big, and that's where a lot of the money is going to be, so I I get that, you know, it's unrealistic to maybe expect that single-player will be given preferential treatment with a company as big as EA, but I wanted them at least to have something closer to equality in their focus, but uh, sadly for me, that does not seem to be the case at all, and uh, the guy in charge at BioWare describes Anthem as, quote, the evolution of a BioWare game, unquote, and with the future of the Dragon Age series also being previously described in what sounds like shared world terms, this seemed to just kind of, boom, put the nail in the coffin for any hopes of a return to equal consideration of the single-player uh, experience at, uh, at, at BioWare. Um, all right, I also want to touch on something interesting that I noticed during the sports section. And I think this kind of popped out to me a little bit more uh, because it's in a game genre that I'm not interested in, so I was just paying attention to different things and stuff than I would normally pay attention to. So I don't want this to sound like I'm in, what I'm about to talk about, that I'm just picking on EA. I think a lot of companies, including uh, developers that I love, uh, do some of the same things in their marketing. But I just want to point this out because I noticed it here, and I probably won't notice it <laughs> when it occurs as uh, as often in other developers over the course of, uh, of E3 this year. Um, but I raised my eyebrows yet again at the language used during the sports game section of EA's presentation. Phrases like, show the world you're a champion. 
and also encouragement to pursue glory for yourself. Uh, and a focus with the camera and with the, the timing of the presentation on this coveted trophy that, I, that, that just couldn't help but bring the word worship to my mind. There is a way, I believe, to enjoy victory that has nothing to do with what other people think of you and everything to do with the pure joy of the challenge uh, that you're experiencing and engaging with and, and exploring the potential that God has given you to accomplish certain things. Um, chasing victory to gain recognition is a fruitless quest, even if you make it all the way to the top. The author of Ecclesiastes had wisdom, he had wealth, fame, power, and, and all of that was undeniable to the world around him. And yet he found it all to be empty. Uh, Christian speaker and apologist Ravi Zacharias has told a number of stories about famous athletes and actors that uh, his work has given him the opportunity to share private moments with. And, and the short, he doesn't reveal who these uh, people are, but he tells enough about their career that it makes it clear, oh my gosh, these guys are huge athletes and huge movie stars um, who have told him privately that their achievements left them empty and even regretful for how they spent their time in life. And yet these games, like these sports games, are trying to simulate <laughs> what, uh, you know, what, what it would be like to, to be the best of the best in the, in the athletic world. You know? um, so that's, that's just like, oh, man, that's kind of sad and ironic to me. EA uh, knows that appealing to our natural tendency to, to pursue our own glory will make their games more attractive. And so they do that. They, you know, in their marketing, talk about like, you know, show the world who you are and how great you are and, you know, and uh, you're pursuing glory and stuff like that, you know. Um, I don't think they do this menacingly. I want to be really clear about that. I, I would imagine that the ones making these decisions about marketing or even how the game is constructed to make that kind of the goal of the game... I would imagine the folks making those decisions aren't aware themselves of the vanity in in what they promote in their marketing or in their in their game design. But as believers, uh, it's important that that we correct that tendency in ourselves, that we guard against it. I, I so often fail into measuring my success or self worth based on what other people think about me, uh, but my identity and significance have nothing to do with that. And everything to do with God's just like baffling, mystifying love, patience, and forgiveness just tirelessly given to me. I want to remind you guys to check out the other members of the Christian Geek Central Network, such as the Strangers and Aliens podcast, the Theology Gaming podcast, the Untold podcast, POS, TOS, Helix Reviews, and the Retro Rewind podcast. For more information about the CGC Network, visit ChristianGeekCentral.com. I just watched Microsoft's E3 2018 press conference. I was really looking forward to this event. Xbox has been focusing a lot on game services like the Game Pass catalog, which allows people to get subscription uh, to uh, access to multiple games, like uh, I think over 100 games for roughly, I think, $5 a month. Uh, so they've got that system. They have been focusing, uh, as always, on good online multiplayer services. 
I, though, tend to zero in on a few games that, that match my particular preferences. So, like, a subscription service to a broad variety of games isn't really going to interest me. And I really am exclusively a single-player, offline hermit video gamer. Uh, so, Xbox these days just tends to not be doing the kinds of things that are really attractive to me. Now, Cyberpunk 2077 does actually really interest me. I want to keep track of that. I hope there'll be more information and gameplay that comes out uh, during this E3. But the, the, I played The Witcher 3, some of it. I still, I think, will finish it at some point, maybe. Uh, but the, the narrow kind of skill slash ability tree in that game, you know, you can't really be a full-on mage, you know, or like a backstabby thief and stuff. It's really like, no, you're Geralt, and you do what Geralt does, and that's, that's you know, kind of within those parameters. Uh, so, that was unsatisfying. The combat was unsatisfying. The story felt, felt completely inaccessible. Uh, and so, it, really, those elements kept me from finishing that game, at least up to this point, despite how much The Witcher 3 is celebrated. And so many people just seem to assume that CD Projekt Red can do no wrong and they're going to make Cyberpunk 2077 is going to be this great game. I'm not confident of that at all. At least not a great game as far as my preferences go. So I still don't know if this game will be for me and I need to see gameplay before I can even begin to figure that out, which is why it was so disappointing to just see a what I called a CG trailer. There there may have been gameplay footage without, you know, uh, HUD elements involved and stuff like that. But uh, Anyway, it was disappointing to me to not see gameplay. Uh, so let me actually go over my uh, jaded predictions that I had made for this conference, as well as my unrealistic wishes, and see which ones came true and which ones didn't. The first prediction was we'll see some of Crackdown 3 and the new Gears of War, and yeah, that came true. That wasn't a very crazy, outlandish prediction, so uh, I'm not super surprised there. Second, I uh, predicted that neither Crackdown 3 or Gears of War will be my cup of tea, with too much emphasis on action game scale or multiplayer. And and no, that didn't come true, but I have to qualify that. I was actually kind of interested in uh, Crackdown 3. I, I mean, like, it potentially might be my kind of game because it reminds me a bit of the Saints Row games, but it also reminds me of where the Saints Row series went, namely to Agents of Mayhem, which ended up being this kind of open-world, over-the-top thing where it was so over-the-top that I didn't feel like I was, you know, doing crazy things in a real place. What makes open-world games like, you know, urban open-world games fun for me, is if the city has a, a sense of realism to it, except for maybe the ragdoll physics of people as I accidentally, you know, run into them driving my car around. So it's the it's the humor that emerges from my doing ridiculous things in a semi-realistic environment, not my doing ridiculous things in an over-the-top, cartoony, Tron-land kind of environment. So... I don't think I would be interested in Crackdown 3 for the same reasons that I ultimately kind of faded out and lost interest with Agents of Mayhem. Gears of War, I would just need to see a whole lot more about the gameplay of the upcoming game to, to know if it's my thing or not. Number three, I predicted that Microsoft will play the part of the underdog that I want to root for a little, but still not give me any tangible reasons to think an Xbox console could be in my future. That one absolutely came true. Uh, as far as my wishes... The first wish was more backwards compatibility. I know they've given us so much, but I want more! Uh, and done in a way that makes players demand more from Sony. That's really the motive there. I want Sony to get better backwards compatibility. That's why I wanted them to go forward. I didn't really see a focus at all on backwards compatibility, so that wish did not come true. My second wish was a game focus. Specifically exclusive games that will release in 2018. So this one kind of came true. There were a boatload of games there, including a number of games that might 
that Microsoft isn't typically known to be associated with that that, that come out of Japan. There was uh, Devil May Cry 3 and uh, Tales of Vesperia and, and a number of titles that were coming out of Japan. I was like, that's cool. That's definitely kind of like filling a gap in their library that I'm sure some people will appreciate. But none of those games that they showed in particular were ones that I, I felt drawn to. So, And there were barely any real exclusives. Most of their 18 exclusives that they uh, that Phil Spencer announced at the beginning and then said again at the end were timed exclusives or like smaller indie games, maybe part of that sizzle reel. I really had trouble finding more than two or three that were actual real, you can only play this on uh, Xbox One or a PC and you know, you're out of luck on the Switch or, or PS4. So, uh, And then my third wish was some kind of jaw-dropping surprise that would just like bring Microsoft back into the game in a way that uh, none of us expected to see happen and uh, that didn't happen. <laughs> so we had good reason to not suspect that. Um, despite not being an Xbox fan anymore, I, I did want them to have uh, some games and some features in this press event that would entice me and that would get uh, Sony competing with them some more. And this show just didn't do that as far as I'm concerned. They mostly showed trailers and gameplay footage for games that will ultimately be available on PlayStation as well as Xbox. Uh, as for what they plan to uniquely bring to the table, their main focus seemed to be uh, spotlighting the growing list of titles available through Game Pass. Todd Howard came out and said, hey, Fallout 4 is now available on Game Pass. And I'm like, okay, well, I've, you know, the, these games, I've played them already. The, when it's, it's really impressive when they say, hey, this upcoming cool game will be available day one on Game Pass. That's like a crazy value. But, if, you know, it's these games that I've already played before. I'm not really interested. Um, so they're, they were spotlighting their growing list of games available through their subscription service and also spotlighting their initiatives to make new games and tech advances in the future. This was kind of focused on toward the end of the show. Um, they talked about their acquisition of multiple game studios uh, and basically saying, hey, these guys are going to be making games for us now. And these were all game studios that were making games that haven't really interested me in the past. And so I'm not really interested in the games that they're going to make in the future at this point. Uh, then they talked about uh, how they're doing research into AI for games. And I'm like, okay, well, that's that, that'll be kind of cool at some point. They're going to do more research into cloud gaming to bring console quality gaming to mobile devices. Devices, which sounds really cool, but again, that's something that's coming at some point in the future, and it's certainly not going to get me to buy a console when the whole gimmick is to have console-quality gaming on not a console. <laughs> maybe they mean that they're going to be streaming your Xbox to your mobile phone or something like that. I, that maybe that's it. Anyway, um, and then the he, he Phil Spencer gave the promise that their hardware team is making a new Xbox console. Well, you know, of course they are. Um, in a nutshell, the message seemed to be we're going to be doing amazing things. We're going to be an amazing company sometime in the future. Um, Phil Spencer also said something interesting early on as he talked about gaming in general. Uh, and this is more on the philosophical, you know, radar category of things. I had a little blip here in my mind as I was watching when he said that gaming is the great unifier. And this would be an example of the kind of hyperbolic language that assigns too much value and significance to gaming as a hobby. I can't imagine gaming being the great unifier 
Unless you never spend any time online, ever. Um, the, the nastiness and the verbal fighting among gamers is almost a, char a defining characteristic of the hobby as it exists in the online space. So Phil Spencer's words there just baffle me in light of that. Now, setting that aside, I think Xbox is pumping tons of resources into their future, which is kind of cool to see happening, even though I'm not personally excited or invested, you know, over that. Um, but I do hope that it serves them well. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the future. I also hope Sony is watching. Xbox has, I think, lost the console war clearly this time, but they seem determined to win the next one. Uh, in the meantime, however, they don't have anything that interests me. the Bethesda press conference, uh, I didn't think I would get hyped a few weeks ago for this E3 in general, but I, I found myself very hyped about this conference. Uh, it was definitely better than last year's as far as my preferences go. There were a lot more explanations of gameplay on a few of the titles, where I, last year there was it was mostly just gameplay footage and trailers, and then they were done, you know. But I still have a lot of questions about Fallout 76, which was the main game that they focused on this time, and I'm disappointed that we didn't see more of one newly revealed game, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. After a rough start featuring a live rock band performance that I didn't care about, they showed gameplay of Rage 2, which is coming spring 2019. I would have preferred that the release date for that one was in the fall, but spring is okay since I already have way too much to play, and I don't quite know what this game is yet. That's a big question for me. Um, gameplay footage that they showed for Rage 2 lacked user interface elements, uh, so we they said that it's an open world, but I mean, I'm wondering, uh, what it, how much is it like other open world games that I'm familiar with? Are there skill trees? Are there, is there looting or crafting or any kind of character ability progression? I mean, what is this game? What is it like to play this game over the course of a few hours or nights or whatever? Uh, these are important issues to me because I suck at standard shooters and I prefer games where I can grind for XP or abilities or, or gear to compensate for my lack of quick reflexes and precision with a controller. I really really would have liked a few minutes describing the game systems for Rage 2, but maybe that'll be found somewhere else uh, in E3 this week, so I'll be keeping an eye out for that. Then they promoted two online games that I don't care about because I don't play, I don't like to play games online or multiplayer. Uh, Elder Scrolls Legends, which is their kind of like digital card game thing. The Elder Scrolls Online as well. Then they followed that with a tease for Doom. I haven't finished the first game yet, so I don't care yet about uh, this, this sequel, Doom Infinite. I think it's called. And then they showed a bit more about the, the Quake Champions online game. Possibly the best thing to come out of the, the conference for me, surprisingly, is the announcement of a story mode for Prey. Now, I enjoyed the world of Prey, but I quit ultimately because I just noticed that I was often not in the mood to sit down and kind of be stressed. And so the story mode, I'm wondering if that might get me back into the game to finish it. Um, I mean, the jump scares are still going to get me, but maybe they'll get me a little less 
if I know that the creatures are a little less dangerous to me. I don't know, we'll see. I loved a lot about that game, so hopefully an easier gameplay mode will enable me to take on the rest of it and see it through to the end. The the update for story mode, which the update included some other things as well, but the story mode is what jumped out to me. Anyway, that update they said is available now, so I'm reinstalling the game and downloading that update to check it out as soon as I have a chance. Then they promoted a Wolfenstein 2 bit of DLC called Youngblood, featuring the twin daughters of B.J. Blaskowitz, the main character of the Wolfenstein games. and this So this jumps forward in the timeline to the 1980s where they're all grown up and going on their own Nazi-killing, I presume, adventures. Um, I loved the uh, the first two games in the Wolfenstein series, in, series as it's been, you know, rebooted recently by Machine Games. Uh, and I'm actually gradually replaying them for the alternate companion path. Uh, so this news gave me a reason to, to kind of like be motivated again to get back into those games um, while I wait for what sounds like a cool DLC experience that I'll probably enjoy. Then they brought out... Um, excuse me, fighting off a burp here. Then they brought out Todd Howard. Uh, this is the man responsible for the Elder Scrolls games, Oblivion, Skyrim, uh, Morrowind, um, and also the Fallout games that have been produced by Bethesda. His name is almost kind of synonymous with what Bethesda is known for. He took... Uh, uh, us on kind of like a deep dive into Fallout 76, referring to it as the next Fallout, despite the fact that it's played entirely online. Uh, he assured the audience that, of course, you can play it solo, but I'm thinking to myself, well, how can that really be the case if, as he also said, every other character you come across in Fallout 76 will be played by a real person? It, so I have all kinds of questions left about this game. Is there any way to play offline with NPCs replacing those that would normally be, uh, you know, controlled by other players? That's the case with the game I recently reviewed and have been enjoying, Conan Exiles, which is also kind of a survival uh, simulation, kind of open-worldy type of game. Uh, I've really been enjoying playing that offline single player with nothing but uh, AI-controlled uh characters that I'm that I'm running into in the world and so I would really love for that to be an option with with a Fallout 76 but there was no mention of that I'm hoping that you know there is a feature like that and it just wasn't relevant to bring out but it'll come out in an interview or some some little bit somewhere that I find this week uh, as I'm looking combing through uh, E3 coverage but uh, my personally one of the many reasons that I don't like to do online multiplayer is that my role-playing immersion gets broken a bit when I venture out into this imaginary world and run into characters named Monkey Dookie 769 you know. Uh, and yes, I did see usernames hovering over avatars in the gameplay footage that they showed for Fallout 76. So that is definitely something that uh, that, that is worth anticipating as, as, as a reality. Uh, my other question is, will I need PlayStation Plus to play this game if I just want to play it solo? Is there a is there an option where it's like, hey, I don't want to interact with other players, so do you really need to charge me for PlayStation Plus in order to play this game? I want to know if there's a way to do that. Some games that are built in, uh, in many ways to be played online do have a way to play them offline without requiring the, uh, the PlayStation Plus subscription. Sub Subscription service. So I'm, I'm really hoping, I'm hoping that that will be the case. Um, Todd Howard also said, this is a concern of mine, that the easiest way to play Fallout 76 is to team up with other players. And so I'm like, well, what is, what does that mean? Does that, is that like kind of another way of saying that the game is going to be like 
well, certainly, it's, I think it's another way of saying the game will be more difficult if I go it alone, but how much more difficult, prohibitively difficult for someone, you know, with my crappy skills? Of course, there's no way he could know what my particular, you know, crappy skill level is, so I understand why he's not going to get into that. They're also going to be trying to steer people into the multiplayer stuff. I get that, but your steering isn't going to work on me, so I just want to have them cut to the chase and tell me, you know, what is the single-player solo offline, or if, is there an offline experience? And if I'm forced to be online... Uh, as is the case with, say, Monster Hunter World, can I still at least play it without, you know, seeing other players and having to do stuff with them? Anyway, here's a big one. What about the VATS system? The Fallout series is known for this signature targeting system called VATS that allows you to slow down time and more carefully and precisely select your targets, you know, targeting specific limbs or weak points or whatever. There was no sign of the VATS system at all uh, that I could see in the footage for Fallout 76. Now, that makes a lot of sense given that this is an, primarily an online game. I mean, you can't, like, if everyone is pausing the game going into slow-mo, then suddenly, even if you're not using VATS, you're game world is going to slow down while the dude next to you is using his VAT system. You know, they can't do that in these kind of online multiplayer games. So is there going to be some other version of VATS that operates in real time? I, I don't know. That's if they, if they don't find another way to represent VATS, that seems to me like a gaping hole in 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 what in in what is the kind of like a defining element uh, of of what makes a, a Fallout game a Fallout game. So anyway, um Todd Howard also announced a beta for Fallout 76 saying that uh, they will need the the player's help. He jokingly treated beta as a vault tech acronym beta for break it early test application. And you know, it was a cute joke, it got a laugh, but I mean, I'm a Bethesda fan for their single player games. Uh, so they've already got their work cut out for them trying to convince me to give Fallout 76 a try. I am not going to help them get it working. Honestly, though, uh, I, I'm betting there are a ton of players who are probably itching to help them out who have been waiting for this type of experience, so I'll let them have at it, and I honestly hope they enjoy the experience. It looks really cool, looks really Fallout-y, but I personally am just hands-off until I know whether or not I can play without other humans involved and whether or not I can play without having to pay for a PlayStation Plus. Um, besides that, I just finished playing a new Fallout game a couple years ago. Where is the Elder Scrolls at this point? Where is Elder Scrolls 6? Or, or some kind of like a, you know, offshoot of Elder Scrolls or something? Well, and the answer is that Elder Scrolls is now coming to your phone as a free game. Elder Scrolls Blades is going for a true blue Elder Scrolls experience on the iPhone with additional PvP arena and roguelike modes uh, added on as well. Well, and they actually seem to be a significant focus of the uh, of the intended gameplay. I had zero interest in Elder Scrolls Blades until Todd Howard said that they plan to bring it to as many consoles as they can as well. So I'm hopeful to eventually try it out on my PlayStation 4 with a proper controller. I just generally don't like playing games on my phone. Um, or maybe I could play it on my Vita. I mean, there's a fat chance of that, but it seems to me that the interface would maybe be a little bit closer to, you know, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see what happens. But I'll, I'll likely ignore it until it reaches at least one of those platforms, though. Also free, and by contrast to uh, Elder Scrolls Blades, 
available now, this one on PS4 and Switch, is Fallout Shelter. Available now, they said, on PlayStation 4 and Switch. Now, I gave this one a try when it came out on the uh, uh, for smartphones when, alongside the release of Fallout 4, but I lost interest in it pretty quickly because I just don't like playing games on my phone. But as a PlayStation 4 game... Um, where I can just kind of like sit back, look at a nice big screen and have a comfy controller in my hand, you know, I will probably download it and give it another try. Uh, that's And, and that, that makes two now uh, games that or experiences that are like available now, surprise, surprise, that will appeal to my interests. And that was one of my uh, wishes for E3 has been for the last uh, two or three years maybe even. So that was really cool to get two things that were surprise, surprise, available now and that specifically appealed to my interests in the same uh, conference. So very cool, very cool. Finally, Todd Howard presented two brief teasers, one for the long-rumored single-player epic new franchise Starfield, which is rumored to be a space exploration single-player game with very similar gameplay to, say, Fallout uh, and uh, Elder Scrolls. And... Um, he described Starfield as coming after this year, so it'll be 2019 or later, but he also described it as being next-gen. And I don't think we're going to see the release of the PlayStation 5 and the next Xbox in 2019. I'd be a bit surprised um, unless Sony... Well, no, I think Sony confirmed that they're not going to have any like hardware reveals, so I guess it's possible that they could reveal their new hardware you know, in early 2019 and then release it in late 2019? I don't know. I think what this amounts to is Starfield is not going to be in 2019. In fact, it'll probably not be until 2020 or 2021. Um, so that's a bit of a bummer, but at least there's confirmation that it was there. He also said that it's building toward, this game is building toward Elder Scrolls 6. I'm not sure what he meant by that, if, if, it's, if it's gameplay systems are kind of building toward Elder Scrolls 6, that would be my guess, although there is rumor that it uh, uh, shares the same universe with Fallout 3 um, and maybe also Elder Scrolls, maybe potentially bridging the gap between those two universes. I don't know. So it was very curious that he used that expression, building toward Elder Scrolls 6. Anyway, neither video shown for both because they also showed a teaser for Elder Scrolls 6 and neither of these teasers showed any in-engine content, certainly not gameplay, uh, as, as far as I can tell. They just seemed to be there to let single-player fans like me know that we haven't been forgotten. Um, so let's briefly go over my predictions, my jaded predictions, and my unrealistic wishes, and see which ones came true, which ones didn't, and then I'll give my final opinion of the show. First off on my predictions, number one, Bethesda will increasingly divert resources to online games like Elder Scrolls Online and this new Fallout game. And uh, yes, that jaded prediction came true. Games with major online elements include Fallout 76, Elder Scrolls Online, Quake Champions, Elder Scrolls Legends, which uh, most of those they already had before, but, you know, we had Fallout 76, and then Elder Scrolls Blades as well was added on. So not by much, but they are increasingly diverting resources. And if you think of Fallout Shelter as an online game, which it kind of is, uh, then they also ported, they chose to port that. So they're still giving resources to that. Uh, number two, Jaded Prediction. Fallout 76 will be their big release for this fall. Yep. Coming out November 14th. November 14th, the beta will be sometime before that, I'm not sure when. Number three of my jaded predictions, they will spend half of their time at E3 talking about Fallout 76 and Rage 2. Even though I didn't specify here, I was talking about the press conference specifically, not the week as a whole. Uh, the press conference I clocked at 86 minutes. Those two games, 
added together, they spent 34 minutes talking about, so not uh, not half of their time. Um, number four, Rage 2 will turn out to be not my kind of game. Well, no, it didn't turn out to be not my kind of game, but I don't know that it is my kind of game either. There was just a lot of questions that I need answers to in that game. Uh, and number five, the other half of their time they will dedicate to DLC for games I don't play and to previous games they've released, which will soon be ported to Switch or remastered for consoles in general. Well, there was a little bit of that in the mix, but it's far from being the other half of what they uh, talked about. I really should have accounted for online titles that they already had in their, in their uh, catalog and mobile uh, games as well. Uh, my unrealistic wishes. Uh, let's go down the list. Number one, for Rage 2 to be an open-world FPS game with RPG elements, a sort of post-apocalyptic Far Cry, that was not granted. I mean, maybe it was, but I, I don't know. Who knows at this point? Um, number two, Fallout 76 can also be played single-player, offline, in a world populated only by NPC characters. No, that was certainly not confirmed, but maybe, who knows? You know, there's still room for that to be a reality. Number three, that Elder Scrolls Six to be revealed for release in 2018. So, no, that was not granted. Number four, 2018 release date for Skyrim New Vegas. In other words, a spin-off in the same engine as uh, Skyrim, but maybe made by uh, an outsourced studio. No, that definitely was not announced. And number five, reveal and 2018 release date, not just a tease, which is admittedly more likely, for the project referred to as Starfield. Well, definitely not a 2018 release date. Um, just And definitely we got that tease. But, you know, this, so... That's that's something. That's something. Despite not getting confirmation that Rage 2 or Fallout 76 will be my cup of tea, and no hope of a soon-to-arrive True Blue single-player Bethesda RPG, there were several little nuggets that did interest me and games I definitely want to follow up on to learn more about. It's weird. I mean, it's like, it was kind of like, uh, what's the expression? The It was more than the sum of its parts. I, it's, I, I don't know. There's, there's some kind of expression they're looking for, but like each of these things cumulatively, that's some, let's go, let's go that route instead. Cumulatively, uh, I'm pretty satisfied with this with this press conference. Not 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 any one of these little nuggets that I am interested in interested in or that were appealing to me, you know, would be enough on their own certainly to be to make me feel like oh cool, you know. But all of these little things added up together. Let me add them up really quickly. First off, I plan to download and try the Prey update and Fallout Shelter on PS4. I mean, that could alone end up providing up to two new game experiences immediately at no cost to me. So uh, that, that that's really cool. Um, I do plan to get back into Wolfenstein uh, in light of the DLC coming called Youngblood for Wolfenstein 2 that looks, you know, uh, pretty cool to me. I plan to follow up and learn more about Rage 2 and Fallout 76. So, you know, they they have me very curious and wanting to know more. They haven't deflated me uh, of my interest in them yet. Um, I will keep an eye out for Elder Scrolls Blades on PlayStation 4 or Vita to try the, to try it out if it gets to one of those platforms. I mean, hey, it's free. Why not? And I'm glad to at least have confirmation that Starfield really is a thing, and so is Elder Scrolls VI. So, uh, again, all of that cumulatively leaves me not excited at the end of the day, but, but pretty satisfied. Data collection complete. Activating Usenet 1.0.
This week at SpiritBlade.com, our summer sale, summer sale is still running, dang it, where you can get any or all parts of our Spirit Blade audio drama trilogy for 20% off. You can get more details at SpiritBlade.com. At ChristianGeekCentral.com, I want to highlight again the topic we have on uh, the where we should place, where should we, where should we put, excuse me, our, uh, the, our uh, online community. Gosh, I didn't... <laughs> script this at all so i'm just winging it here um but yeah the question is should we move our community to facebook or if we're going to basically add another um social media community platform what could that look like i i would love to hear from you guys um if you haven't uh, shared your thoughts on that yet again on the on our forums at christiangeekcentral.com and at youtube.com slash christiangeekcentral you can find all of my e3 reaction videos and each of those i've included gameplay uh footage or trailers or whatever is relevant to what i'm talking about so if you want to see the visuals to go along with uh, and to give you some visual context for what i'm blabbing about you can get that at youtube.com slash christiangeekcentral also also, you can mark your calendars for Friday, June 22nd from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. Pacific. Uh, I'm going to be doing a video game live stream, burning through my backlog of unfinished games with a lineup specifically inspired by E3 announcements. So, for example, uh, I'm thinking of a number between no one. <laughs> I'm doing um okay I'm planning on playing at least some of the original rage in anticipation of rage 2 and I'm planning on playing uh some of I think dragon quest builders in anticipation of dragon quest 11 and so on and so forth so uh and I'm sure I'll be playing some assassin's creed origins in anticipation of assassin's creed odyssey so anyway um all of that again during my live stream next Friday, June 22nd, from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. Pacific at youtube.com slash Central, I would love for you to stop by and to have a chance to kind of connect with you a little bit. Um, and while you're at our YouTube channel, if you want to like, share, and subscribe, uh, that's a great way to help to grow our community. And if you want to stay up to date and not miss any of the videos, YouTube now wants you to click a little bell icon after you've subscribed, which is really lame, but <laughs> click that so that you don't miss out on uh, when the new video videos get posted uh what else what else what else um i think that's all i want to say for now except if you want to help make sure that uh, spirit blade productions and christian geek central as well it's two sides of the same coin um if you want to help make sure that we can keep doing what we're doing or do more of it both faster and better then you're invited to make a donation of any amount anytime or become a part of the spirit blade insider program and get monthly exclusive goodies i do want to say a special thank you to all of my insiders guys for your very tangible support that makes so much of my work possible. Um, for more information about becoming a Spirit Blade Insider, you can visit our About page at spiritblade.com. And while you're there, you're also invited to support us by purchasing a download of one of our original sci-fi fantasy audio dramas for a friend or family member with our available gift codes. Again, for information, visit spiritblade.com. This time I'm talking about the Ubisoft press conference. I've become a big fan of Ubisoft's 
open world games specifically, like Assassin's Creed, Far Cry, Ghost Recon Wildlands. Uh, within the last f uh, year, two or three years, I've really started to enjoy that formula in those games a lot. So I was really looking forward to this show. Now, I made some jaded predictions and unrealistic wishes, so let's go through those and see which ones came true and which ones didn't. Uh, jaded predictions, just two of them. First, Ubisoft will have no single-player-focused experiences in the showcase this year, apart from a possible large expansion to Assassin's Creed Origins. Now, this that, that prediction video went as it was uploading, I got the news about the the leak for Assassin's Creed Odyssey. I was like, ah, oh, crap, but I just let the thing upload anyway, you know. Um, so this obviously did not come true. But above and beyond that, there really were a number of other games that, even though they might have had a multiplayer component, some of them, were also strongly single-player offerings. It was really surprising, though, that they decided to do another Assassin's Creed this year. I really thought that they were really going for, like, games as a live-service kind of model with the Assassin's Creed series, with the DLC they were offering, with the kind of like respawning missions that you can take on in that game. I just, I thought there would be two years between releases, but I guess we're going back to the uh, annual schedule for releases. I'll get to my thoughts on Assassin's Creed Odyssey in just a few minutes. Uh, my second prediction is that they will hold my attention with hopes that The Division 2 will be changed from the first so that it plays just like Ghost, Ghost Recon Wildlands, but then quickly dash those hopes and make it clear it's once again an MMO in disguise. Uh, this one did come true. I, I don't know that my hopes were high that uh, The Division 2 would be changed that much, but I thought, boy, Ghost Recon Wildlands was a big success. Would they have time to massage the gameplay to make The Division 2 be a little bit more like uh, Ghost Recon Wildlands? Specifically, I, I would have liked some AI, you know, controlled, controlled companions to uh, go with me so that I wouldn't have to play with other real people, but that was really... Uh, <laughs> unrealistic hope so uh anyway yeah the, the, my hopes were definitely dashed it is once again an mmo in disguise my wishes include number one watchdogs 3 will be announced for spring of 2019 and will no longer feature any time sensitive puzzles uh there was no mention of the watchdogs franchise at all i don't think so that absolutely did not come true my second wish was that there would be an announcement for ghost a ghost recon wildlands sequel that would be coming in spring 2019 Nope. Also, I don't think any mention of Ghost Recon Wildlands. Uh, my third wish, and this was way out in left field, it was for a new open-world franchise based on The Terminator. Oh, they're the company that could totally do it, but uh, it didn't happen. I didn't think it would. After I posted that video, including my wishes, I realized, oh man, there's something I would really like that maybe is even possible, but I didn't think to include it in my uh, in my wish list at the time. Uh, I've recently finished Far Cry 5 and discovered that once you finish the campaign, the kind of roaming cultists that just randomly appear or, and are wandering around in the world, they are all gone once you beat the final boss. And that was kind of one of the crazy fun things about that world is just randomly, you know, coming upon and being attacked by uh, cultists and stuff. And so to be going around and doing all the extra stuff 
after the main game and not have those guys jumping at me and coming out of nowhere or whatever, you know, that's, uh, it takes some life out of that game in a major way. And so I know that a lot of Far Cry 5 fans really want this feature to be added in so that people can turn those, those roaming cultists back on. Uh, I thought, you know, with all the guys, they had like several different um, people representing games coming out just to talk about basically an update that's coming. And I thought for sure, you know, we haven't seen all the DLC for Far Cry 5. I thought for sure we would have the Far Cry 5 guys come out, talk up the next DLC briefly, and then maybe that would be the time where they could say, hey, and we know you've been asking for this, here's an update, da 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 And it would just take them like less than 30 seconds to say anything about it, and then they could go on their way. And that would be a nice treat for uh, Far Cry 5 players, but alas, did not happen. What did happen was still uh, a conference that I enjoyed overall, I think. It didn't have anything that left me really excited, but I still saw a lot that I liked. Now, despite recoiling in disgust whenever I see anthropomorphic talking animals, Beyond Good and Evil 2 was shown to be an open world, or you might call it an open galaxy game, bringing Ubisoft's open world strengths to outer space for what I think might be the first time. Uh, I know that there was some openness in the, I think, like the second half of the original Beyond Good and Evil, but nothing like, as I understand it, what Ubisoft is now known for in their open world games. So uh, I'm excited to see that formula brought into space. I, I can probably put up with some talking animals to at least give it a try. Likewise, Starlink has me interested, despite being, despite my hesitance to do anything with toys to life, you know. Uh, th this is the, a game where you're like, do, you're a space fighter pilot, and they show you having like a toy that you attach to your controller, and it's modular, so you can add things onto your little toy space fighter and stuff, and it changes what happens in the game, or what your fighter is equipped with in the game, or something. I'm not really clear on the details. In fact, there's a whole lot more about this game that I want to understand. What What is this this game exactly? How is it played? I was surprised that they didn't go into more detail about those kinds of things or, or given kind of a little bit of a demo uh, where they talk as they play through it, given that it releases this October 16th. So that seemed a little strange to me. Um, it, it seemed like in some cases they went with quantity of games representation rather than uh, than quality of getting into them. But maybe they're going to release some information over this uh, week of E3 that will answer some of those questions. That's really what I'm hoping. The Crew 2 was off my radar before this press conference. Um, but when I learned that uh, well, the reason it was off my radar to begin with was I found out that, that cars and vehicles don't become destroyed after hitting the ground from high altitudes. In this open world vehicle kind of tra traveling, racing game, you know, you can switch on the fly, literally, from one vehicle type to another. So like a plane, can you can turn it into a car and you can do that from really high altitudes. Thing is, when your car falls from high altitudes, it isn't destroyed like it would be realistically. There also aren't any civilians walking around that I need to, that I need to uh, avoid and dodge, you know. So when I found those two things to be the case, I kind of lost interest in the series because for me it's the, the wacky craziness of accidentally hitting people who fly away unrealistically like ragdolls, you know, or, or seeing my vehicle get slow slowly destroyed through my, you know, crappy driving. Those are the things that provide a lot of fun for me in open world driving situations. But but seeing the game footage again, uh, more game footage for it, I, I kind of like started feeling attracted to it again. And I, I began to suspect that maybe I don't need those elements um, to be present to still have a really good time. The Crew 2 releases in just, it's like just days from now, around the corner, June 21st is when it releases. So while I may not buy it right away, 
I will be watching lots of reviews and giving that game careful uh, attention and consideration. I mean, open world driving and flying where I can, or boating or whatever, where I can switch between vehicle types literally on the fly with world-bending Inception-style mechanics, which they showed last year, but I don't think this year, where like the, the whole world can kind of suddenly tip up at a 90-degree angle, just crazy stuff, you know. Uh, so all that kind of stuff, I'm just like, this is just looks like crazy fun. I mean, it sounds like a great way to just kind of chill out at the end of the day. Finally came the trailer and demo for Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Now, uh, I've really become a fan of the Assassin's Creed series. I really especially like the changes made in Assassin's Creed Origins. I was getting sick of some of the timed and insta-fail missions that the series had had previously, and so I actually quit playing it right around the beginning of Black Flag. Uh, So uh, I really liked what what they did with Origins. I've been really enjoying my time with that game. But I'm, I'm like less than halfway through Assassin's Creed Origins. So, I mean, I... I don't need another Assassin's Creed game anytime soon, but uh, but I'm still interested in this one. I mean, the fact that they're keeping the RPG systems and taking them even further by offering dialogue trees now, that was welcome news to me. Um, but I didn't, strangely enough, see any stealth assassination gameplay. It just felt like a, like a third-person action RPG with maybe light fantasy elements uh, with an emphasis on the action of action RPG in the style of maybe kind of 300 even. I'm guessing that in this demo, they just wanted to play up the inspiration they were taking from movies like 300 and keep the demo pretty combat heavy, but still not seeing stealth in the demo was weird for uh, Assassin's Creed. Either way, I'm enjoying even the non-stealth aspects of Assassin's Creed Origins, and and it's good to know that I can get the same itches scratched by a new game immediately after uh, I finish Origins. Ubisoft is usually good for providing some philosophical ideas to talk about or reflect on. In my reaction to their press event last year, I pointed to their repeated declaration of their own diversity and inclusiveness, which they put at the beginning of every Assassin's Creed game, and I also commented on the influences of Hinduism being displayed in the game Beyond Good and Evil 2, as we've seen it so far. And the influence of Hinduism, I suspect, uh, within Ubisoft itself as a company and the people who are running it and making decisions. Uh, This year had almost nothing like the philosophical elements that were present in last year's show. But one nugget I picked up on in, in the new Beyond Good and Evil 2 footage was when a hero character said, Gods protect us, implying the the dominance of polytheism in Earth's distant future. So I asked myself, well, that's interesting. Are are we heading toward polytheism? Um, or or is it monotheism? Or is it atheism that we're heading toward? As believers, we can look in Scripture and see that eventually Jesus will physically return and usher in a kingdom that, when all is said and done, will be undeniably monotheistic. But, uh, you know, my question is, where are we headed in the meantime as a culture at large? I think... In Western, at least pop culture, artistic culture and stuff like that, movies, film, uh, I mean, uh, TV and uh, music and all those kinds of things, um, that in those areas we may be heading toward, maybe heading toward polytheism. But I think I've actually seen even more of a pull toward pantheism, where God is synonymous with creation, meaning that everything and everyone is sort of a part of God. But uh, polytheism does have some emotional appeal to people, I think, because it allows us to kind of affirm multiple religious beliefs and avoid stepping on anyone's toes. And uh, sensitivity and like this kind of uber tolerance that redefines the word tolerance uh, is really...
really prevalent today and highly valued, so uh, I can see why polytheism of some form would have some appeal. The problem is that form of polytheism is really more like relativism um, rather than belief in an absolute pantheon uh, of, of gods. Um, in any case, I think it's good a good idea for us as Christians to become familiar with the beliefs of those around us, the beliefs that are gaining popularity, um, understanding their origins and why they are found appealing by those who believe in them, uh, and also examining them closely enough to understand how and where they break down logically so that if we have the opportunity, um, if we've invested in someone's life, if we have enough of a voice in their life uh, that uh, that that uh, our words can have some weight with them, then then we'll have the knowledge and understanding uh, to to lovingly, with God's help, bring some truth to to someone who that we know who is maybe caught up in some broken and self destructive beliefs about uh, who God is and and who they were made to be. This time we come to Sony. Now I am a, a PlayStation fan or owner I guess you'd say I should say and so I was very curious about what they were going to be doing this year um, I'm seeing a pattern now in these conferences where there's less talking and more games the problem is the way that they show those games is as trailers or gameplay without user interface or commentary of any kind as a result we're seeing footage that you know represents the visual and auditory feel of a game but doesn't clearly represent how that game is actually played. Um, this is really strange to me in this conference in particular because Sean Layden, head honcho of PlayStation's uh, US Wing, seemed to indicate prior to this event that this event, and, and I think even like um, when he was talking to some co-hosts at, one, uh, at a break point, um, seemed to be indicating that this event would be about going deeper into games that we already know about. We saw new footage, but I wouldn't call the experience one that took us much deeper into what these games are or whatever. Um, I hate this trend, I, I, but I think I get it. Um, I, I, maybe the intent is to simply create hype uh, as they kick off E3 through uninformative spectacle and then hope that the audience is motivated by that experience to go and investigate the games that interest them. And, and I get that. You can't do a deep dive on all these games. Um, that's what the gameplay stations are for on site at E3, so that people maybe get, you know, who are getting wowed by, oh my gosh, Ghost of Tsushima, I really want to check that one out especially, then they can go have a 30-minute or whatever deep dive at a demo station or whatever is going on at E3 that... <laughs> I'm not really familiar with. So I can see how maybe this would be part of the overall strategy for their week at E3, but just for me as a viewer, I miss when conferences took deep dives more often into games and, and had uh, developers providing commentary. You know, you don't have to go to the trouble of making like a, a fake, really scripted demo, but just like show footage of the game being played, even if it's edited, uh, edited up, and have some dev kind of talking us through it. You know, I think that Todd Howard does this pretty well. He, uh, with the the Bethesda games, he doesn't, you know, always uh, do them live. In fact, he rarely does. Usually he's talking over pre-recorded gameplay footage. So anyway, I'd love to see that at Sony. Didn't get that at Sony. Um, 
their approach definitely allows games to more games to get more exposure, but I still miss having the devs talk me through gameplay demos. Uh, I guess I'll just have to look for something like that in the media outlet coverage throughout this week. All that to say that the Sony conference was, for me, a disappointing clip show that only rarely communicated info about how the featured games are actually played. Uh, first, I'm going to go through my jaded predictions and unrealistic wishes that I made in a video uh, a couple weeks ago. And I'll go through which ones came true and which ones didn't, and then I'll talk about some highlights of the show. First off, of my jaded predictions, number one, we either won't get any useful info about what playing Death Stranding will be like, or we will, and it will turn out to be a social media-based game, as some vague references have implied. Uh, well, this, yeah, I, this one did come true in that the first part came true. We won't get any useful information about what playing Death Stranding <laughs> will be like. Um, I mean... You could argue that maybe we did, but it's not clear to me exactly what was going on. I'll talk about Death Stranding in a little bit. That's one of my highlights. I'll circle back around to that. But uh, I would argue that we didn't get any really useful information about what playing Death Stranding will be like. My second jaded prediction, Ghost of Tsushima, will turn out to be way too artsy and niche for my tastes. Um, no, and I was a little surprised by that, but at the same time, I don't know, maybe maybe it will turn out to be that way. Uh, I, there's so much I don't know about this game, I wish they would have told me. Anyway, so that one did not come true. And number three, the majority of the time will be spent on The Last of Us Part Two. No, that was definitely not the case. I think I forgot to... I just assumed after last week, after after last year, them going so heavy on the trailers and then maybe getting some criticism from that, that they would be a little bit more like hands-on demo style this time around. I did not anticipate that they would basically do the same thing that they did last year. So, oof, man. My wishes, unrealistic though they were were, number one, Death Stranding will turn out to be my kind of game. Maybe some sort of experience taking cues from Bioshock. Well, it still may turn out to be my kind of game, but it hasn't yet. <laughs> uh, number two, Spider-Man will get a deep-dive exploration of its gameplay and serve me no red flags in the form of timed missions or other insta-fail scenarios. Well, we definitely didn't get any kind of deep-dive exploration of Spider-Man. Number three, uh, I wished that they would make Spider-Man a game where it's fun and easy to be Spider-Man in an open world and give it some great character-driven storytelling as icing on the cake. No, uh, that may be the case. In fact, I think there are hints of that in what I learned from Game Informer, and I'll talk about that a little bit later, but uh, no uh, indications of that necessarily here. And then number four, my last wish, <laughs> disc-based PS2 backwards compatibility or some other way I can perpetually enjoy the more quirky or license-based PS2 games unlikely to be remastered. Not only was that not uh, granted as a wish. they I, I don't think they really talked hardly at all, if at all, about really like service type things that are associated with the PlayStation hardware. It was really uh, just about the, the games. Um, so yeah, I think PS Plus was briefly mentioned as, oh yeah, and here's a free PS Plus download game or something like that. But that was the closest they came to talking about their infrastructure. Um, anyway, the, the Last of Us uh, I'll, I'll go through kind of like my highlights now. Um, the Last of Us wasn't my kind of gameplay, so I didn't get very far. I, I mean, very far in that first game, and I have no interest in the second one, so I'm not going to talk about that really until the end. I have some thoughts. Uh, the first title that really caught my attention was Ghost of Tsushima, or Tsushima. Uh, I've heard it pronounced two ways by different commentators and people, so I'm not sure <laughs> which one. Uh, aesthetically, 
I'm ready for this game. Um, I didn't think I would be, as I don't have any interest in Japanese history or mythology. But the visual design of the world was beautiful and stylishly uh, orchestrated. And the sound design had all those subtle bits that I like so much when it comes to foliage and crunching boots, you know. Um, what I wanted was some user interface elements. I mean, is, is there a health bar in this game? Or is this like Bushido Blade, where you basically die if you get hit once? I, don't, I want nothing to do with a game like that. What about that, that slow motion mode that kicked in now and then? Is that something that I can trigger? Or that happens when I'm positioned in a certain way with my enemy? Or does it just happen at times I won't be able to anticipate? Um, all the beauty in visual and sound design won't give you my wallet uh, until I know whether or not I even have a chance of rolling credits on this game. I suck at action games and have no tolerance for frustration in my gameplay, so I like to get a lot of information or a less than $5 price point before I'm willing to risk buying any game that requires hand-eye coordination and quick thinking. So, with this game, Ghost of Tsushima, I am very curious, but very skeptical until I have some more key information. The next game to grab me was Death Stranding. Still no user interface on the screen for this game, but arguably some gameplay. Uh, we saw a digital Norman Reedus do a lot of walking in a lot of places, apparently to deliver packages uh, by foot for some reason <laughs> in this strange post-apocalyptic world. Uh, I never, I mean, I'm thinking, okay, I get that maybe cars have broken down. Is is nobody doing horses anymore? Or like, anyway, I'm, I'm sure there's a rationalization for it in the story. Um, I never touched the Metal Gear Solid games that uh, Hideo Kojima the developer of this game is really famous for and that people just praise him for and, and it's those games that are the reason that people are really excited about Death Stranding but I didn't play those games. I really want nothing to do with those games because I know enough about their gameplay to be like that's not for me! <laughs> you know? um, and so I don't have that, that credit uh, you know, that, that's getting me trusting Kojima and excited about just whatever he puts his mind to, you know. So, um, so if anything, I'm actually more skeptical that I'll enjoy this game now after seeing this footage. At the end of the gameplay footage that they showed, uh, it looked like there was a stealth sequence going on. And when the hero was spotted, what happened? Near instant death. I freaking hate uh, that kind of insta-fail stealth gameplay. Um, you know, give me a chance to fight my way out if I'm spotted. That's what I appreciate about, like, uh, the Far Cry games or Assassin's Creed when they're not doing their really... Uh, they can do some dumb insta-fail missions, too, but in the open world, anyway. Um, so, really, that's that's really what I want. I want, you know, stealth is cool, but don't just have, don't have me be killed instantly or the mission fail and I reload. I mean, don't make one wrong move on my part caused me to have to go back and repeat game material. If you do that, I'm not touching what you're selling. That's, that's just the, uh, the end of it. Um, now, it still looks like this world uh, and whatever's going on in it is totally my thing. This really dark, weird, kind of alien stuff. I'm totally down for that. And maybe I'll end up watching someone's movie cut of the game on YouTube one day. But until this game demonstrates that it is not going to have gameplay tropes that frustrate me, I'm not going to set myself up for frustration and wasted money. 
Finally, Spider-Man for the PS4 was given a nice long slice to show gameplay and even included a few button prompts here and there. It looks really cool and, and it looks tons of fun to just kind of whip around on webs and fight the bad guys. Uh, but honestly, I, I only feel that way watching this footage because of what I learned from Game Informer's coverage uh, where they went in-depth on how web traversal works and how combat works. You know, Knowing that going into this is what made me watch this informed, uh, no pun intended, you know, about what this game is and how it plays so that I could appreciate and kind of imagine what was going on and how the game was being played in the demo footage, you know. So um, I really became more interested in playing this game because of Game Informer than from watching this demo footage. Uh, that said, there is a great moment where Spider-Man in this demo is actually being totally beat down by a group of villains, leading to a reveal of someone off-camera that Spidey is shocked to see, but the audience doesn't see. Uh, and that moment, that kind of moment, just confirmed what I'd, I'd already heard from Game Informer, um, that this game's story will create drama by forcing a clash between Peter Parker's personal life and his life as Spider-Man. Uh, the best Spider-Man stories, many fans would agree, are the ones where Peter has personal stakes involved, not just physical challenges. And that's the kind of story that I might actually get invested in. Um, Okay, so before I wrap up, I want to rewind back to the start of the showcase and react to some interesting elements involving the preview footage for The Last of Us Part Two and its incorporation of LGBT themes. The scene starts up and we see the character Ellie, who returns from the first game and who was established to be either a lesbian or bisexual previously in the series. From what I gather, it wasn't strongly and undeniably stated. Uh, I don't know for sure. Um, that's just kind of what, a little bits that I've read here and there. Um, but, uh, but it was the intent of the writer and those involved in creating her scenes and her character that she be uh, understood um, or or that, that in their minds, uh, they were clearly approaching her as though she were uh, lesbian or bisexual. So now in this scene, we see her dancing in a church setting in the post-apocalypse. And there's this dramatic cinematic weight given to a kiss between her and another girl. As opposed to just being like a brief affectionate kiss. That's just like, oh, whatever, you know. Um, it's a very significant kiss between two women in a church building with at least one cross visible in the background, um, not during the not during the uh, kiss, but my point is, uh, there's evidence that this is specifically a Christian church of some kind. Um, now, I have no idea what the intent is in creating a scene like this, so I may be setting up and interacting with a straw man here, um, and I so I want to be clear on that. But for the sake of exercise, I'm going to do it anyway with that disclaimer. My personal impression is that the scene is at least in part thematically conveying the message that, hey, the world has gone to crap, so our divisions over these uh, little issues like homosexual relationships aren't important anymore, uh, so much so that this significant moment celebrating homosexual love can be ironically celebrated uh, even in this setting once committed to teaching that would have condemned this behavior. Um, now, if that's the case, if that was kind of like some of the idea floating around uh, and driving the intent of parts of this scene... 
um, then it strikes me as being part of what I would call a normalization strategy on the part of some in the LGBT movement, wherein homosexual characters and romances are portrayed as unquestioned and normal in fiction to help acclimate the consumer to uh, homosexuality. Now, this strategy will work with someone whose moral compass is relativistic and simply produced by their own heart, their own thoughts, um, but it, it, it won't work among those who consider the Bible to be God's authoritative word for us today. Uh, for those Christians, the LGBT supporter or activist needs to uh, undermine the reliability of biblical inspiration and show that we have more reasons than not to treat the Bible as non-authoritative. And I'm wondering if many in that movement realize that this is the case. It will be interesting to see if they ever realize uh, that collectively and begin a strategy, you know, to that effect. Uh, of course, if they never feel the need to undermine the authority of the Bible, then that may actually say something discouraging about how little the Bible is treated as authoritative among Christians. Um, I can't help but wonder as attendance of uh, biblically liberal Christian churches has plummeted in the last 10 to 15 years, those churches that would tend to kind of treat the Bible as all being uh, poetic language that you can kind of interpret largely however you want, whatever, you know, is, you know, feels good to you or whatever, you know, that's oversimplifying the, the interpretive framework there. But, uh, uh, but that seems to be the gist of kind of what I would call a, a liberal uh, interpretation of the Bible. But the, the kinds of like mainline denominations that have taken that kind of view, the, their attendance has really been plummeting in the last 10 to 15 years. Whereas those churches that uh, tend to be more focused on on uh, interpreting the Bible uh, literally as it's intended, you know, in the various uh, literary genres in which it's written, in its historical and linguistic context, you know, uh, those kinds of churches are are seeing growth now over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, so anyway, I I can't help but wonder as that as that's going on in the, the the world of Christianity, if this kind of normalization strategy is working in a sense and actually helping to identify and separate those who only nominally identify with Christ from those who are genuinely trying to understand and be subject uh, to his word. Um, anyway, it's a, that's a crazy rabbit trail, a very sticky topic. Um, I'm not looking to uh, start anything that's kind of heated here. Uh, but uh, anyway, if anybody wants to you know, shoot me an email, you can reach me at P-A-E-T-E-R at spiritblade.com and we can talk about this topic or, or anything else on your mind. Um, anyway, yeah, crazy rabbit trail. I probably gave way too... <laughs> too much time to that but i kind of feel like you know if the guys making christian content for geeks don't talk about this stuff then uh then no one else will so there you have it at the end of the day um normalization strategy intended or not the last of us part two is still not my kind of game for based on the gameplay of the first one in the series but i think spider-man might be uh, I haven't been a Nintendo fan since the uh, like the Super NES days, but my two young boys have a Wii, and I'm always looking to see if uh, if it might be worth getting a Switch sometime in our future. Uh, it's still going to take some significant changes and new offerings on the Switch to make that happen, but this showcase from Nintendo definitely moved me a step closer in that direction. Uh, first, let's take a quick look at my jaded prediction, just one on this showcase, and uh, my two unrealistic wishes and see which ones came true and which ones didn't. Uh, my jaded prediction was that for this E3, Nintendo will focus a bunch on the Smash Brothers and recently announced Pokemon games coming to Switch, then show a bunch of ports I've already played or don't care about. <laughs> that, um... 
that I, I arguably came true. I don't think exactly like that. Uh, they gave a little bit of extra time to Pokemon, a ton of time to Smash Brothers, and they did show a, like a sizzle reel of ports for games that um, I've uh, already played or <laughs> don't care about. So, um, But despite that being in my mind kind of like this jaded, oh, they're going to do this kind of prediction, um, my actual feelings about the execution of that were a bit the reverse, and so I'll get to that in a little bit. My unrealistic wishes, uh, two of them, the first one, for them to clarify or change their plans for legacy games. That did not happen. In other words, I was wanting some kind of a, uh, updated policy or plan that they were going to set in motion for Switch owners to be able to download games from the DS, 3DS, NES, Super NES, all their, all their legacy consoles, instead of having the subscription service that they've kind of talked a little bit about, I really want something different than that. Um, that didn't happen. My second unrealistic wish was for Nintendo, Nintendo to become noticeably more fan-friendly, beginning with this E3, regarding their protection of IPs, which can come across as kind of tight-fisted and, you know, greedy or something, just a bad get bad vibes off of that uh their online services which have been uh you know really subpar compared to other main line consoles uh and you know fan loved intellectual properties returning those kinds of things um i'd love for those fans to feel more heard and responded to by the game makers they appreciate so much well i want to say that yes this un- what i thought was an unrealistic wish did come true not in terms of their protection of ips or their online services but in terms of how they're treating their fans with intellectual properties that their fans love. Smash Brothers alone was uh, huge in what they did there. I'll talk about that in a little bit. And then they also, you know, brought a bunch of other games that I think uh, fans have, you know, maybe wanted to see or didn't know they wanted to see but will be excited to see nonetheless. Uh, So anyway... Yeah, that was really cool to see that happen. Nintendo, uh, historically, as you probably know, does really well with children and families as, you know, those parts of their audience. And they also have a committed core of gamers, just adult gamers who uh, like their first-party intellectual properties like Mario and Zelda and Metroid and stuff like that. But they've not done as well with games for just kind of mainstream adult audiences uh you know what maybe someone would call like hardcore those mainstream hardcore gamers you know you don't often see for example an m rating on a nintendo on a game that's built to be played on on a nintendo console or a dark and serious tone for a nintendo console game there are exceptions but you don't often see those things uh certainly not compared to the you know what xbox and playstation are doing but this showcase began to change that impression for me titles like uh demon x machina Xenoblade Chronicles 2, which was having some, I think, some new DLC is what they were promoting. Fire Emblem Three Houses and Octopath Traveler. All those games have a more serious tone than what is typical of Nintendo games. And in their sizzle reel, where they showed a bunch of clips of, you know, games that are coming to Switch, uh, they, they included a number of ported games from uh, mainline consoles from the last couple of years. Uh, and they added mature games like Wasteland 2, Ark Survival Evolved, Dark Souls Remastered, Wolfenstein 2, and then also recent fan favorites like Fortnite. But I mean, that's going to be big for them, I think. Uh, Dragon Ball Fighter Z, Mega Man 11, and Monster Hunter Generations Ultimate, which I suspect will appeal to new Monster Hunter fans who were brought on through uh, playing Monster Hunter World. And and seeing the footage of this little indie game called K- Killer Queen Black reminded me of the onslaught of indie games that have been coming to the Switch over the last year or 
so, to the point that you could arguably buy the Switch as a mobile indie gaming console. Um, now, nothing they showed me in this, uh, this showcase actually made me want to buy a Switch now, either because, you know, they were showing games that weren't my kind of game, or it's something that I can get or have already gotten on another console. But they are quickly catching up to some of the main console game release schedules. I mean, Dragon Ball Fighter Z and Wolfenstein 2 were released on the more powerful consoles less than a year ago. Um, when Nintendo can start having Switch versions of new big-budget releases available on the same date as they come out on the uh, the, the bigger and more powerful consoles, um, even knowing that the Switch version will be technically inferior, if they start doing that, they're going to have my genuine attention. Um, because they're also producing a number, a growing number of games that my two boys will likely enjoy. I don't think I'll ever get a Switch just for me, but I have two boys that I think will appreciate uh, a growing number of the games that they're putting out for Switch. And so those two elements cumulatively combined... Is there another way to combine things? I think you just automatically... its I don't know, being redundant there. But anyway, uh, add those things together. That's going to make me purchasing a Switch uh, increasingly more likely as we go into the future. I, I can uh, imagine that for many other gamers who haven't bought a Switch yet, uh, this kind of showcase might tip them uh, over the edge. And the fact that they took a deep dive into Super Smash Bros. Ultimate was great! Uh, it's not my game. I want nothing to do with this game. But what a cool thing for fans of that series. All previous fighters included in this new game. All previous amiibos compatible with this game. Uh, what, what a great way to, uh, to treat your fans instead of doing the double dipping that... Uh, you've done in the past, Nintendo. I mean, great choice. And looking at the character lineup for this, you know, reminded me of my history with video games. It made me wish that I did like fighting games. If they had a super open-world RPG bros ultimate with that kind of character lineup, I would seriously consider buying a Switch. All that to say, I personally continue to be very uninterested in the Switch, but hey, well done, Nintendo. I'm betting this showcase will make both existing fans and many fence-sitters very happy, or certainly uh, at least the latter will be uh, more interested and uh, considering buying a Switch. Right now, I've arrived at the PC Gaming Show. Now, I hardly ever play any PC games, certainly not any new ones. I just don't bother keeping my PC specs uh, up to snuff for that. But I watch the PC Gaming Show every year because some of the games that they feature will be coming to consoles as well at some point. Um, I've got to say, despite not being a PC gamer, this might have been... Um, aside from maybe Nintendo, the most satisfying show yet in terms of how it made use of its time. Not in terms of necessarily games that would appeal to me in particular. Um, let's go over the results of my jaded predictions, uh, and, uh, well, my jaded prediction, just one, and my unrealistic wishes, and then I'll give some thoughts on the, uh, the moments that stood out to me. My jaded prediction for the PC Gaming Show was that it will be a loosey-goosey, slow, overly long event with plenty of uninteresting filler and conversational ads where the host chats with the show sponsor for way too long. Um, 
No, it's a qualified no, though. This was the first year where I didn't watch it live, and so I was able to skip that conversational ad, but it was a little less conversational and more just uh, upfront, like, hey, here we're promoting something, two guys talking on stage, you know. In general, the vibe of this thing, I, th- I think they tried kind of a, like a talk show vibe in previous years, and they've been slowly moving away from that, and now it's like full-on, this is like a press conference mode kind of thing. I still would say that I don't like the kind of like personality-oriented vibe of the two hosts. I would rather they just had people on stage that were comfortable talking, not necessarily people who were also personalities, reading from a script and ready to announce things to you, you know. Um, So, uh, you know, a change of host would be fine with me in future years. But all the other things I've really found to be improvements. Uh, It was a much tighter show, less than two hours long, only one conversation ad and one more obvious promotion... (laughs) involving someone standing and talking next to a mascot for some kind of food company. Um, Anyway, and they also, for almost all the games, showed a little bit of gameplay and at least provided some basic info about what the game is, which was great. (laughs) Microsoft and Sony, that was a great thing that the PC Gaming Show did. Um, Anyway, my uh, unrealistic wishes for them, number one, were uh, for them to cover games that will also be coming to console but aren't getting attention in the other big shows, as well as PC-exclusive games with low system requirements that my PC will run. And yes, this wish was totally granted. Uh, They they talked about Warframe, Killing Floor 2, and Jurassic World, uh, as well as a bunch of indie games, so all those... uh, Jurassic World Evolution, sorry, is the name of that game. Um, And a bunch of indie games, so all that really fits in that category. None of those games were really, you know, grabbing and appealing to me, but they're, you know, it still grants that wish. Uh, And wish number two, to see indications that the gap is getting smaller between PC and console gaming. A great start would be an increasing trend for gamepad UIs to be included as a standard feature in PC games normally made with keyboard and mouse in mind. Um, And yes, I know that I'm getting, I'm getting really invasive on the PC gamer space and I don't mean to be. These are just my personal preferences. Uh, But no, that wish was not granted, but maybe. I don't know. They showed footage of a game called The the Sinking City that possibly had a command wheel, I think, that I was seeing repeatedly instead of using hotkeys, which would be much more common for a PC-only kind of game. So, uh, anyway... I didn't come away from the PC gaming show excited about any of the games that were featured, but a few still stood out as being interesting. One was, as I just mentioned, The Sinking City. It's described as an open-world investigation game, and that's... Hey, that's more than we know about Death Stranding, by the way. Uh, And clearly has Lovecraftian inspiration, including a a sanity system and bizarre nightmarish monsters. And all these elements together. I mean, I love all those things. So, Uh, And the command wheel makes me think that it could port to consoles well. Or maybe that's the intention, is to make it easy to port to consoles. So I hope to find out at some point that that is the intention. Tripwire Interactive, headed up by fellow Christian John Gibson and known for the gory horror shooter Killing Floor 2 is now becoming a publisher they announced on the stage of the the, the PC gaming show. Their first featured game in that line will be Man Eater, an open world action RPG where you play as a shark who 
eats people to progress and gain new abilities in a skill tree. Um, now, like Killing Floor, the violence, while gory, is modeled after over-the-top movies rather than you know real-world violence, or in this case, real-world shark attacks. For example, in this game, as the shark, you can even jump briefly onto land or large objects to attack people, like you know over-the-top uh, B horror flicks about sharks. You know, um, so uh, that kind of over-the-top. <laughs> craziness has me strangely interested um mainly also though because it's an open world action rpg i just love that kind of game so uh it's also cool to see a christian having an influential role like publisher now in the uh, mainstream video game space so i'd want to suggest that we be we be praying for john gibson and the opportunities that he has to uh, represent christ in the games industry whether publicly or uh just with other developers and media behind the scenes finally the game rapture rejects caught my attention. Um, the trailer shown involves stick-like cartoon characters. So it's, it's definitely a comedic game is the intent. There's a goody two-shoes character who's praying in a sort of like superior, prideful manner while his annoying, bad, quote-unquote, roommate distracts in the background. And then he goes to bed and the rapture happens. He wakes up, he goes to his window, and he's thinking he's going to get taken away. And then instead his, quote-unquote, bad roommate is taken away. Goody two-shoes is not. His response is to effectively say, well, screw everything then, and he immediately starts drinking, smashes the bottle, jumps out the window, and starts killing people. Um, here's part of the trailer. Dear God, every day I strive to be closer to your light. I pray that when Judgment Day, that most holiest of days, comes upon us, when you bring all the good people to heaven, that I may live in eternal glory by your side. Amen. Harold! Get down here this instant! You didn't break the leaves! Smell you later, you old s***! <laughs> this is one more uh, time, one more instance where I'd like to sit down with the developer and try to get a handle on, you know, where they're coming from and why particularly choose this theme and portray it in this way. After showing the trailer, the host of the PC gaming show laughed and said, I can't believe we got to show that trailer. That's so great, you know. So um, there's this, uh, in secular circles, There's there's been this increasing awareness of the biblical concept of the rapture, basically where uh, where God says, okay, the time to just let everything run amok is over, um, and I'm now going to drastically make changes that are going to uh, bring about the kingdom that I have planned. Um, and uh, so this, but the, the, I, I don't think people, you know, are typically aware of, you know, all of what I just said describing the rapture, but they're aware of the idea of, of God, you know, just instantly uh, pulling up a large number of people uh, to be with him forever. Um, but this, uh, but but the, I think that the concept of rapture in secular circles is increasingly being made fun of. I've seen it made fun of in uh, in movies, and, uh, and this is another example here. Um, but something this video seems to have no awareness of, the gospel, which is really interesting to me. Notice that the goody two-shoes says in his prayer that God will bring all the quote-unquote good people 
to heaven. In another part of the trailer, a bickering old couple get rejected halfway through being pulled up to heaven because of their fighting while they're being pulled up. And on the on the game website for, uh, uh, what's this game called? Rapture Rejects? On the game site for Rapture Rejects, the uh, concept for the goal of the game reads, scavenge for weapons and kill every other person on earth to impress the Almighty enough to let you into heaven. So that's a very kind of like um, jaded view of of what God's plan is for uh, for humanity and and you know what uh, what is the determining factor for for who spends eternity with Him. Um, now, while it's possible that many non Christians have selective hearing when they hear the basic message of the gospel, I suspect that this broken representation of the gospel is also potentially due to Christians themselves having a broken understanding of it. Um, The first thing I think we lack is an understanding of the holiness of God as we think about this this issue of of eternity and heaven and hell and and the the major choices that are made that lead to one of those two destinations you know um i think we forget to factor in the holiness of god in other words the when i say holiness i'm talking about the perfection the the beauty the the goodness of god that is on such a higher level from us that it's like totally indescribable it's just totally other and alien to our, our understanding if god is just a kind of a big powerful person but otherwise a lot like us well then it's understandable why we might feel offended that he would judge us uh, and we would be critical of him for how he's you know making decisions about who goes where and stuff like that but it's actually appropriate and good uh, for God to be the one who is judging us because of who he is it's I'm glad that he's judging us because he is not what people typically you know in the secular mainstream world think of as you know his characteristics and what he's like you know he's so other from that and that's why i'm grateful that he's the one you know making these big decisions so understanding the nature of his being and his character just who he is as a person will i think be increasingly important as we present the basic message of the gospel the other vital part of the gospel uh, and that word uh, as you may know means good news is that it is good news. It's not the message that if we work really hard at being good, God will love us and bring us to heaven. The gospel is rescue for us from a hopeless situation. We are simply not compatible with the perfectly loving and selfless kingdom that God is preparing to build. You and I are going to screw that up. I know I will if I get dropped into it as I am right now. Something about us has to radically change if we expect heaven to be a different kind of life than this one here. Um, But God isn't expecting us to become perfect in preparation for that, to get ourselves ready to be good enough for heaven. He's instead going to remake us as we enter through the door, but only if we want him to. He's not going to force that on anybody. God is giving everyone a choice. And those who end up with God forever um, will be the ones who want to be with him forever. Uh, They won't be the ones who think they're good enough to live in a perfect world side by side with perfect people and a perfect God. No, they'll be the ones who have recognized at some point that they aren't able to earn a place with him through their good deeds. Uh, The rapture, the gospel, aren't about God bringing good people to heaven. It's about God taking broken, sinful people and making them 
good, removing their sinful tendencies from them because they know they need fixing and they want God to do that for them. Uh, some key verses, I think, as we revisit the gospel or try to explain it to others, um, which I'll share from the ESV translation, would be first uh, John 3.16, of course, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I think that phrase eternal life is really important to keep in mind when we're talking about the gospel message. Um, because even Even more important when we're talking about, you know, eternal life in heaven, then passages that use the word saved or salvation, because that's a very context-sensitive word. So I think passages that use the, the phrase eternal life are more clear when we're actually specifically talking about eternal life. John 5.24 says, Truly, this is Jesus, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Notice that once someone hears the words of Jesus and believes that he is truly sent by God, that person has eternal life. They have passed, it says, has passed from death to life. It's an event that takes place at a specific time, and then it's a done deal. It's in the past tense. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin, in other words, the payment that we are due for sin, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This verse highlights the fact that the gift of eternal life is a free gift. It does not require payment or maintenance in the form of modifying our behavior to some specific degree. Paul later in the same book says regarding the gifts of God, Romans 11:29, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God does not take back his gift of eternal life from anyone. Uh, and 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Even though we as believers will be unfaithful, we will be inconsistent in our commitment to Jesus, he remains faithful. Um, that doesn't mean that there won't be consequences for us in this life and um, fewer rewards for us after this life. But as far as just the rich, wonderful, free gift of eternal life in the presence of God, that is a done deal for those who place their trust in Jesus to forgive them and fix their broken mess. I mean, he cannot deny what he has said and promised to us, um, no matter how much we dip or stumble or fall uh, after coming to a place of belief in him. Looking at the Square Enix uh, showcase, or whatever you call it, it was about a 30-minute video that they put up to promote what they've got in the works, and I found it very disappointing. Um, it was really just mostly trailers and unexplained gameplay. Um, and uh, let's see here. Oh, yeah. And just the same trailer for Kingdom Hearts 3 that Xbox showed. I, th I thought, well, come on, we'll get something fresh now. I feel like that trailer, I've seen it a bunch of places. And I thought at their own showcase, they would have something new. But uh, I guess not. Really, only the Shadow of the Tomb Raider and Just Cause 4 got any explanation or commentary that went along with their gameplay that's of note i think there was maybe a few comments here and there about other games but those are the only ones that really got kind of ongoing uh commentary or any kind of deep dive into the gameplay and i'm thinking to myself why not introduce dragon quest 11 more fully to new players here in the West who maybe only played Dragon Quest Builders, and that's their only knowledge of Dragon Quest, or maybe who have played no Dragon Quest games at all, you know? Or do the same thing for Kingdom Hearts 3. I mean, it's been a long time since the last game in that series, uh, apart from, like, the various updates and things like that, and uh, and I, 
I think I've heard some people say that like this is intended for new audiences, the Kingdom Hearts three, but. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't feel like they're really trying to draw in new audiences. So I didn't really feel that about any of the games that, that uh, they presented. But anyway, I, I'm curious about Babylon's Fall. There was a little brief teaser for that because the visual design looks like something that I would enjoy. But I still wish they uh, would have just not bothered teasing it. If we can at least learn something about what type of game this is. Uh, I assume since I think it's Platinum that does it, the same guys that did... Um, what's that game? It's not Neo. It's... Uh, <laughs> crap. Near, near Automata or Automata, or however you pronounce that. So I'm guessing it'll be something along those lines, action RPG type experience. But I prefer just to not hear about you know any games until you're ready to tell us what kind of game it is at the very least. Really, I'd prefer gameplay too. Uh, Octopath Traveler continues to look really cool to me and would probably be my first purchase if I ever end up getting a Switch. But uh, I, I really wish it was on other platforms. But you know, I you know I, the one thought that did occur to me is that it could because I think I've seen this happen before, it could possibly, unless it was completely funded by Nintendo, which I'm not sure about, I can see it coming to other platforms like two or three years after it makes its debut on Switch. We'll see. Anyway, Just Cause 4 got some nice commentary over gameplay, but since Just Cause 2 had some frustrating checkpoints and Just Cause 3 reportedly had major performance issues on consoles, um, I'm just going to wait for reviews before even considering Just Cause 4. The Quiet Man's live-action trailer turned me off, uh, and I'm not a Disney fan, so Kingdom hearts isn't for me and that was the showcase in a nutshell um but because it felt so lacking in information content i decided to just wait and watch the uh, square enix streaming content that went on for three days throughout the week and then offer my reactions to square enix's various reveals at e3 as a whole rather than just what they revealed in their pre-recorded 30-minute showcase video but before i go over what i saw from square enix elsewhere let's go over my jaded predictions and unrealistic wishes that i expressed a couple weeks ago my first jaded prediction for square enix at their in their showcase was number one most of the time would be given to Kingdom Hearts 3 and Tomb Raider. Well, that actually ended up not being the case. If you know, if if anything, there was a nice variety of games here. I just wish it would have been about 15 minutes longer, and we would have learned some uh, significantly more about all the games that were that were shown. But I appreciated that the, there was a lot of variety there. Uh, my second. Jaded prediction was that a splash of time will be wasted on a CG trailer for Final Fantasy VII Remake or a tease lacking details for Final Fantasy XVI. Neither of those things happened, which I appreciate. Uh, and then my one wish was that we would get a deep dive of gameplay with commentary for Dragon Quest XI. And, of course, that did not happen. Um, anyway, in looking at the various live streams that they had going up, and then also some stuff that I found out by going over to the Nintendo YouTube channel, uh, I'll give some comments on you know the games that they're showcasing at E3 this year. First off, after all is said and done, I'm like, oh, no Dragon Quest Builders 2? I mean, I, they were, I think they were just... They were showing footage of the game in progress at last year's E3 and then nothing this year and maybe they wanted it to you know stay out of the way of Dragon Quest 11 which makes sense but I'm still hoping hoping for something closer to a simultaneous release f um, for Japan and the West that that does happen uh, every now and then and since Dragon Quest Builders I think was 
fairly successful in the West, maybe they'll they'll see reason to uh, to get that you know localization into high gear and be ready to go at the same time as the Japanese release. I don't know. Maybe we can hope for a spring 2019 release. That would be really cool. Anyway, um, Octopath Traveler. I saw more of this on Nintendo's YouTube uh, uh, stream, their their Treehouse live stream event. This is uh, a beautiful and serious looking callback to Super NES JRPGs and Final Fantasy 3 slash 6 in particular. It it features a deep combat system where enemies have specific vulnerabilities that you have to figure out through combat and then take advantage of to you know cause this initial break in their defenses that will then make them truly vulnerable to the rest of your attacks. Each character has unique abilities that give them advantages uh, not just in combat but in the world as you're exploring it. There just seems to be a lot of deep systems at play both in and out of combat that's really enticing to me. As the title Octopath Traveler implies, there are multiple game paths that depend on which character you choose to to start with. I'm actually not a fan of this approach because I don't want to have to replay the game to experience quest content that I missed the first time around because I didn't choose a certain character. It's also very unclear how long the game is on average. Uh, Most games of this retro JRPG style released today are around 10 to 20 hours long rather than the 30 plus hours of the games that inspired them. Um, I really like big, meaty RPGs that, that I can settle into, get to know them really well, and then be in that game for a while uh, and, and uh, spend a lot of time completing it. So if it's only 15 hours long, then I'm really not interested in this game. Um, so I'm going to wait. I'll watch reviews. But if it has a good length, it will probably be the first game I buy if I ever get around on some blue moon distant day to buying a Nintendo Switch. Um, and then lastly, Dragon Quest Eleven. This is really what I wanted to hear the most about, what I really was diving into the, any details um, on that I could find. Um, in the segment that was dedicated to Dragon Quest and their live streaming, they spent half the time showing the horse race minigame. What?! And then they only answered questions in the Q&A section from what sounded like pre-existing fans of the franchise. So, um, again, it just didn't seem like they were reaching out to try and attract new players to this franchise. For many players, the idea of of turn-based combat sounds kind of boring, but Dragon Quest has found ways to keep that pure turn-based combat intact while still making it faster uh, and and or more interesting. Um, So it just felt like... They were presenting it to people who already knew about Dragon Quest and will already be buying this game. It just felt like a big missed opportunity. I'm also really bummed that no live orchestral score will be included in the U.S. release of this game, as it was in the U.S. release for Dragon Quest VIII back on the PlayStation 2. That real orchestra brought class and significant production quality to the game. Um, I mean, I remember when I was playing the game once and my wife was doing something in the other room, she was like, uh, what is this that you're playing? You know, And, and she said, boy, I usually just kind of want you to close your door so I don't have to listen to your weird music and stuff, but this actually sounded nice, you know? Um, it's the difference. If you've never heard it before, and if you're not familiar with kind of like what what the series sounds like, they've, ever since, I want to say maybe PlayStation and the PlayStation 2 era, when they could have moved forward with using live recorded um, orchestral scoring, or at least scoring that used better MIDI samples, more realistic MIDI samples, they for some reason have chosen to keep with this very kind of like retro MIDI sound, almost like Super Nintendo era, you know, somewhere a, a little above that, you know. But it's the difference between hearing the theme with an orchestra, from bum 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 
ba-ba-ba-ba. And instead, what you get is... I mean, it like just sucks all the awesome <laughs> right out of it. So a bit of a bummer. Um, anyway, it, yeah, it's weird. Even though the technology has allowed for a real orchestral soundtrack or at least more realistic MIDI samples since Dragon Quest VII or VIII, um, the, the low-tech MIDI soundtrack has been an intentional choice, presumably to retain a sense of tradition or nostalgia, which is like the, the series relies heavily on uh, both tradition and nostalgia in all other aspects of production. They're still using some of the same uh, spell casting sound effects. I mean, like t- to a T, it's, it's crazy. Um, and there is some kind of a charm to it. I understand that many fans find those elements vital to the integrity of the franchise, but I really did love having that orchestral score. I readjusted to the retro MIDI sound for Dragon Quest Builders, though, so while I'd still love to get class in the soundtrack for Dragon Quest XI, I mean, I, I imagine that I can settle for quaint instead. Um, I'm also really hoping the series has done away with using save points. I don't always have control over my schedule or sometimes just might not feel like committing an indefinite amount of time to exploring a dungeon and usually you have to save at a church in a uh, in a town nearby. So, uh, man, please, Square Enix, break from this horribly outdated JRPG practice and let me save wherever and whenever I want. Uh, my bedtime can just kind of sneak up on me and I don't want to be punished for having a responsible bedtime by having to repeat half of a dungeon the next evening. Evening. In all other ways, though, this looks like it will be a great experience for me this fall. I'm really looking forward to getting it. I'm also curious how deep they'll go into the goddess theology of the Dragon Quest world. While the monotheistic church in the game is inspired by the trappings of medieval Christianity, it seems to arbitrarily make the deity a female. And I've heard people, you know, in real life do that before, or ask the question, well, why can't God be a woman, you know? And what they don't understand, I think, is that from a biblical viewpoint, God isn't male or female. He has no reproductive organs because he's a non-physical spirit. Um, When the biblical text refers to God as he uh, or father or any other form of male, it's because analogically, sometimes even metaphorically, describing uh, something about who uh, the, the text is describing something about who he is, and it's doing that in terms that we can relate to, terms of a father or terms of a uh, a man. Um, that has certainly been misunderstood by Christians over the years, and it's also been associated with some uh, unhealthy patriarchal mentalities. But our response to that should be to try and understand Scripture and its cultural and grammatical context more clearly, uh, rather than alter or dismiss it altogether in favor of something that sounds less offensive to us. In my experience with the Dragon Quest series, they don't go into their goddess theology much at all, but I'll still be interested in keeping an eye on it to see if if they do anything different this time around. And even more than that, I will be looking forward to that pure and refined turn-based RPG goodness. Hey, I'm Peter Franson from ChristianGeekCentral.com and Spiritblade Productions, here to give you my top 10 games of E3 2018, as well as some general and uh, final thoughts about E3 2018 in general. Let's just jump right into it. Number 10. Starlink is described by Ubisoft as an action-adventure open-world game and also a deep RPG experience, which are those things are totally up my alley. Uh... It's also a toys-to-life game, meaning that you use physical toy pieces that interact 
with the game. Uh, in this case, your space fighter is physically represented by a toy space fighter. You can attach and remove parts to it that uh, outfit the ship in different ways to play to different strengths and, and weaknesses. And uh, it, it's compared by the devs to a light deck building mechanic so that you can outfit your ship in specific ways to prepare for the specific mission and its unique challenges that are ahead of you. Nintendo Switch players get to have Fox, Mac Fox McCloud... <laughs> Is that his name? And his R-Wing fighter from the Star Fox franchise uh, included in the starter pack. You can play also as uh, Star Fox from beginning to end, and he's fully voiced throughout the campaign. That strikes me as being really cool for those Star Fox fans who have felt starved for uh, more of that series, or who maybe who felt left down by the last uh, let down, excuse me, by the uh, the, the last installment. Um, personally, I hate talking animals, so my interests would only be in the PS4 version of this game. Surprisingly. I do feel a bit interested in it, interested in this. I've, I've always been uh, grossed out by just the whole concept of toys to life, but I saw it with new eyes this time around. As I looked at it, I I began to think of the tactile element um, in board games in that have nice components. The the model ship here started to remind me of what I like about having nice components in a board game and. Um, I'm also discovering that I pretty much enjoy every open-world game that Ubisoft puts out these days, so for those reasons, it really has my interest. But the toy element does bring the price up to $75 from the standard $60 of a new game. $15? Uh, is that a lot? Is that, you know, not that much? I don't know. Um, I also don't know anything about the monetization systems that might be involved in this game. These toys-to-life games are typically designed to tempt you to buy add-on toy components or booster packs or something, and I don't want to get myself in a situation where I feel like buying more and more components is going to be the only way to get the true customization experience that defines what this game is. Uh, it also comes out the same month as a game I may possibly buy on day one because of how much I'm looking forward to it. I'll talk about that in a little bit. After And that comes after a month in which I know I'll be buying two games in the same month. So that's a lot of game purchases for me in a short period of time. Um, and so I have lots of questions and caveats, but I am surprisingly very interested in this game after seeing and learning a little bit more about it. Number nine. Believe it or not, Fallout 76 almost didn't make my list. I just, I hate online games. I am a single-player hermit gamer, and that's all there is to it. I don't want to play with other people. <laughs> but I love Bethesda RPGs. My big question is, can this somehow potentially be played without any other humans in my game? And will it still feel at least a little like a Fallout game? I'm okay with realizing, okay, it's not going to be, you know, Fallout 3 or Fallout 4, but it will still have enough of those elements to satisfy me. Um... I've learned that it will have a real-time version of the VATS system, and uh, that sounds pretty cool to me. It is not an MMO. The number of players you're going to see on a server will number in the dozens, not in the hundreds. And all the characters, they say, which I think they're talking specifically about human characters, uh, all the characters that you encounter are going to be other players. But there are still robots and sort of found world records, you know, like audio journal entries and stuff like that, that represent non-player characters that you won't interact with, but there's still some kind of remnant of them left populating this world. You can play the game solo, but it will be more challenging, according to Todd Howard, the uh, the director of the game. Um, you'll also still have to be online, 
And um, even when you're playing by yourself, you will still see other players. Todd Howard says you can interact with other players or you can ignore them. And I'm thinking to myself, really? Um, I've had just limited experience with online or MMO type games before in which supposedly there is no PvP and stuff like that. But um, what about when they're standing in a doorway? that I'm trying to get through. That happened to me once when I was playing DC Universe Online. That was a big pain in the butt. They were just being a troll, you know? Um, or, you know, how does PvP really work? I mean, what what if maybe I can play by myself or play solo, but can they still just... Is that a state of mind, or is that a reality built into the game mechanics? Can they attack me, you know? Even if I'm quote-unquote playing solo, can I really ignore them then? Uh, regarding whether or not PvP is forced... Uh, Todd Howard said in a Jeff Keighley interview, we're still dialing that. We don't want it to be griefy, but we want to have some drama there. So there is a way that you can decide to do PvP. We're currently balancing incentives for those who want to be aggressive with PvP and those who want to ignore it. We don't want it to be griefy in any way, and we'll dial it in so people can say, I don't want to, de- I don't want to deal with that. Uh, This almost makes PvP sound optional to me. However, when pressed and asked if you can pick whether to have PvP or not, Howard responded hesitantly, well, we want a little bit of drama there without it ruining your game. Well, I don't think he understands how quickly and easily other people can ruin the, the game as I want to experience it. So depending on his team to anticipate what I'll enjoy isn't something I'm ready to do. But, and this is a big one, While not available at launch, Todd Howard mentioned that the intent is for players to have their own private world eventually, if they want, in which they can use mods. This came up in the the context of asking about whether or not mods would be part of the game at some point. Um, But this, this sounds like it might be my entry point for having the solo experience that I really want. Not because I especially want to use mods, but because it would give me that chance to have my own private world with no one in it but me. Uh, For this reason alone, this game stays on my list here. Uh, it's still high on the list because it may not work out as I hope, but it's definitely on the list because if it works like I'd want it to, uh, I'd get to have the solo experience that I really want to have, even in a game that's designed like this one is. And if I do decide to use mods, I'm guessing it won't be long before some cheat mods are introduced that could compensate for me not having any allies uh, to help me go up against the big threats. The real do-or-die question for me in Fallout 76 is, 6 is, do I need PS Plus if all I want to do is play in my own private world with no other players. Um, I have no interest in paying for PS Plus. I have no interest in playing this on PC where you wouldn't have to pay for a service like that. So if the game requires me to do that when I'm playing it on PlayStation 4, that is instant rejection for me despite all the other things it might have going for it. And that's why it's so high on this list for me. Number 8! Looking into Ghosts of Tsushima more, I learned it's an open world game. Emphasis on open. It's meant to uh, emphasize player choice. It's also meant to feel dangerous, like you're always two steps away from death. Like if you put that controller down, you are dead, so don't do that. Uh, They said that you can get away with hammering square early on, but not for long. It's designed to be approachable by either stealth or by coming out swinging with your sword. So player choice in how to approach all situations is said to be a high priority for this game. When pressed on whether new abilities are unlocked in a skill tree or just learned by the character as you play, the devs said the the abilities are learned. That seemed like an imprecise way of asking the question. (laughs) Uh, So I'm unclear what that entails, but if I can't grind for XP with side missions uh, to unlock abilities, and the game is intended to feel dangerous, 
it may end up being too hard for me to enjoy. I'm just not very good at games. Combat features chain assassinations where time slows down while killing one enemy, giving you a chance to move the camera, target another enemy, and quickly press a button to continue that chain moving forward. Um, the world is grounded in terms of not having magic, so it's not based on Japanese mythology, but rather Japanese history. Uh, and it, But it's still a fictionalized version of ancient Japan at the dawn of gunpowder. And it, clearly in the, vi- in the visuals it seems like they're going for kind of a stylized look inspired by, uh, by f- uh, film. The story is about a samurai having to change the way he approaches life after watching his fellow samurai die for their lack of willingness to change uh, in the way that they would need to. Uh, While the samurai is largely motivated by honor, this character will basically have to slowly learn the ways of a ninja for the sake of saving his people from marauders. He's going to have to change from an attitude of fight with honor uh, to an attitude of whatever it takes to win. And that sounds like a ripe opportunity for the developers to make some moral or philosophical value statements. So I'm going to be all ears waiting to hear uh, what they have to say in that regard. I also wonder what Assassin's Creed fans will think of this game. It's possible that for some uh, Assassin's Creed fans, especially those who have wished in vain for the series to get over to Japan, uh, Ghost of Tsushima may be more Assassin's Creed-y than the latest Assassin's Creed game, especially given the huge changes coming in Assassin's Creed Odyssey that veer away from, well, being an assassin, but more on that maybe a little bit later. Uh, so anyway, the jury is way out for me on Ghost of Tsushima, but I look forward to seeing more. Number seven. I'm really enjoying playing Assassin's Creed Origins and all the RPG influence changes that it brought to the series. Assassin's Creed Odyssey is is now kind of completing that transformation, changing the series into a full-blown, open-world action RPG franchise going forward. It will now have special abilities that you can map to your controller eight at a time to kind of hotkey and also branching dialogue that leads to different quests. All that stuff sounds really great to me. Now, Odyssey will have a heavy naval focus, which I'm not a fan of, as I had trouble getting the hang of boat combat in Assassin's Creed 3. Though, I did hear that it was much better in Black Flag, which I didn't get very far into before losing interest, uh, and that game is the inspiration for the naval, naval combat in Odyssey. Strangely, it's confirmed that the hero in this game, whether you choose the male or female uh, hero to play with, will never use the trademark Hidden Blade, and won't even be an assassin since the story takes place 400 years before the birth of the Brotherhood of Assassins. Now, in light of the natural questions that this would raise, a Ubisoft rep said that, to him, the Assassin's Creed series has always been more than just about being an assassin, but is about visiting a pivotal moment in in history. Excuse me. Um, That said, I also learned that stealth and stealth kills are still used if you want to go that route. Uh, But it certainly isn't the default. And I suspect that the Spear of Leonidas, which you carry around, uh, only actually the broken tip of it, um, I I suspect that's going to function similarly to the Hidden Blade when you're doing stealth assassinations. Socrates will be a character, and you will have opportunities to discuss philosophy with him. Socrates will ask the player character about their choices with an aim to make the player themselves reflect on their own choices. And a 
in a surprising moment while talking about this, uh, a rep for the game said this. Obviously, Socrates will question you, so he was very strong on questions, uh, and he'll question you about the choices that you've made, the actions that you have taken, and try to make you, as a player, reflect on the choices that you have made. Have you made the right choices or the wrong choices? But we know that there is no right or wrong choices, so all those discussions with Socrates are, for me, a highlight of the game. Now, English isn't his first language, so maybe something was lost in translation, and he could just be referring to how the game is designed so that uh, players progress Uh, their progress or their enjoyment of the game isn't hampered by a particular choice. But given the morally relativistic leanings Ubisoft has repeatedly displayed, both in and out of their games, uh, could this also be rather an expression of the rep and of the reps and Ubisoft's worldview about uh, morality, about right and wrong. Has someone from Ubisoft actually come out and blatantly expressed moral relativism as the the worldview that they assume to be true? Now, I'm probably making way more out of this than I should, so I don't want to follow that rabbit trail any further, but at the very least, it was it was noteworthy to me. It will be interesting to see if the gameplay choices provided in branching dialogue will allow me as a player to hold fast to biblical values and principles as my character, or if it will just provide an illusion of choice where I have to choose between their limited bad options in a sort of Bioware style of (laughs) forcing tough choices on you. Um... Replacing the uh, assassins to represent the sort of Assassin's Creed lore in the game will be a number of first civilization artifacts that the player will run into. For those unaware, in the Assassin's Creed mythos, powerful godlike aliens were on Earth before humans, um, accounting for early legends of gods and leaving behind artifacts that even account for the miracles of Jesus, according to the Assassin's Creed timeline. Fans have been wanting them to return to this part of the lore, and it looks like they might in Assassin's Creed Odyssey. It will also reportedly touch on the origin of the war between, quote, order and chaos, uh, which in yet one more way shows the leanings of Ubisoft toward Eastern religions, uh, which are not going to talk about right and wrong so much as, you know, this this idea of order and chaos. Uh, And I talked about Ubisoft's leanings a bit more in my reaction to their 2017 E3 press conference last year. I think that Ubisoft... More than any of the big console creators or any other large AAA publisher in video games has some strongly held beliefs that they use their games to promote. Beliefs they seem to truly believe represent diverse and inclusive thinking, but are actually, when you look at them more closely, exclusive and intolerant in some very specific and notable ways. So I'll be very curious to see what further kind of alternate history they want to present in Assassin's Creed Odyssey and what it might reveal about the worldview Ubisoft would collectively like to promote. Um, This game, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, is somewhat high on my list only because I'm playing Assassin's Creed Origins still right now and I'm not confident I'll finish it by the time Odyssey releases, so I have no reason to get hyped for more Assassin's Creed just yet, but I'm loving Origins and I'm confident I'll really enjoy the gameplay of Assassin's Creed Odyssey as well when I'm ready to play it. Number six! From the maker of Castlevania Symphony of the Night and all its handheld spin-offs that I enjoy so much, Bloodstained Ritual of the Night uh, looks like one I'm really going to enjoy 
if it ever comes out. For those not familiar, uh, it's a side-scrolling action RPG like those uh, handheld Castlevania games and Symphony of the Night. Uh, so side-scrolling action RPG with tons of vertical exploration with gear and abilities to gain and upgrade as you explore a giant map, uh, unlocking areas through non-linear gameplay. It's been in the works for years and has been delayed at least once. It, I think, was supposed to come out in 2018 at one point, but on the IGN stage at E3, the developer only confirmed that they will be announcing the release date this year. Though he also described that announcement as coming very soon, so I don't think we need to rule out a 2018 release. So it's staying fairly high on my list because I don't dare get my hopes up for a release that may still be a while off. Uh, and I also haven't finished all the handheld Castlevania games yet, so while I'd much prefer to play games like this on a TV... I don't have any shortage of this type of game by the same creator available to me right now. Um, that said, I'm pretty confident I will be diving in deep and really enjoying this game as soon as it comes out. Number five. Boom! Mother trucker! The Crew 2 comes out in just a couple weeks, and I might even try to get in on the beta, I'm not sure. It's an open-world vehicles game where you can race, do stunts, or just roam from coast to coast uh, by plane or by boat or by, you know, car or whatever, uh, all across the U.S., and you can change instantly from a car to a plane to a boat just in the middle of, you know, whatever you're doing, and that would be fantasy enough for me, but they've also uh, shown some crazy world-bending Inception-style gameplay that adds just some weirdness to the experience that looks uh, like a lot of fun. Um, I've never purchased a racing game before, but Ubisoft's open-world formulas have been enjoyable to me for uh, a long time now, as well as their use of vehicles in games like uh, Watch Dogs 2 and Ghost Recon Wildlands. So I'm ready to give them a try with a full-on vehicle game that sounds like a great, just kind of chill-out activity for me when the workday is done. It's still a bit of a gamble for me, but I think I have a good chance of really enjoying the crew, too. Number four. <laughs> Two words sum up my interest in Wolfenstein Youngblood. More Wolfenstein. <laughs> I'm terrible at shooters, but these... Uh, the, the easy modes provided in the previous two games in this rebooted Wolfenstein series, Wolfenstein the New, New Order and Wolfenstein the New Colossus, um, have made the game doable and fun for me. And I've been amazed at my emotional attachment to the main character, B.J. Blazkowicz, and his story. The trilogy isn't over yet, and this game looks to be another short, standalone DLC-type game, like Wolfen Wolfenstein the Old Blood was, especially given its similarity to that title. You know, the Old Blood, Young Blood... Youngblood is optionally co-op and follows the story of BJ's twin daughters, all grown up 30 years later in the 1980s of the Wolfenstein's alternate history in which the Nazis won World War II. I'm so ready for more of the same kind of action and also to get some insight on what BJ was like as a father. As the trailer suggests, the heroes will be kind of reflecting on what they learned from him as they go through the game. The popular assumption among commentators is that this story takes place after whatever the story of the, of the third game in the series will be. But based on how the story is described on the Bethesda website as springing contextually from the events of the second game, 
I have the sneaking suspicion that this story actually happens before the third Wolfenstein game, um, which I think now might feature a grizzled kind of old man BJ vibe to finish out the trilogy, and I'm totally down for that. Uh, In the meantime, this reveal has me inspired to get back into my second playthrough for the alternate path of Wolfenstein 1 and 2 uh, to get ready for this uh, upcoming spinoff slash sequel prequel. Number three, Rage 2. After finishing Far Cry 5, I'm now hungry for another open-world first-person shooter, and they're surprisingly in rare supply outside of the Far Cry games. With shooting made by the same developers as uh, Wolfenstein and open-world driving made by the developers of Mad Max... I'm all over this game because I, I love both of those. I was initially concerned that it might be too hard or not have the ability to level grind if I'm having trouble. But in E3 interviews, the developers have confirmed upgrades for weapons and abilities, both of which are found by exploring the world. And there are uh, numerous side quests, they say, that allow you to upgrade yourselves. The devs even said that it's easy to get distracted because of how numerous the side quests uh, are. Uh, this was very encouraging for me as it's strong evidence of, of my ability to level grind, which is an important feature for me in games. The crazy over-the-top action, both in and out of vehicles, also looks like just tons of fun to me. Some concern has been expressed over performance issue problems that uh, could be potential uh, could, could be a potential problem here, because they've been common in past releases from Avalanche, the studio working on the open-world aspects of the game. But I had no performance issues with Mad Max, and I suspect that Bethesda, who has now become known for their excellent shooters, will make sure things get ironed out uh, before release. So if all goes according to plan, I think this might be a super fun game Game that I'm just going to give a lot of time to. Number two. For years now, I've wanted an open city superhero game. I know the Arkham games exist, and uh, I am playing through the first one. I understand they don't really open up until like maybe the second game or so, and I'm playing through the first one before the second for the sake of story. So Saints Row 4 at this point is the closest I've come to a high-flying open city superhero game. And while my dream would be for a Justice League open city game, this Spider-Man game looks so fun and beautiful. I think I'm going to love it. Combat looks easy enough. I also saw an ability wheel pop up at one point during a gameplay video that uh, that paused combat while an ability was selected and I really like those kinds of tactical pause elements in action or real-time games. Web slinging through the city just looks freaking liberating. Uh, it's reportedly easy to do but also meaty enough as a system to make mastering it a fun and rewarding challenge. Uh, I can totally imagine firing up the game on a weekday night just to swing around between rooftops without doing anything else. The devs also confirmed that after the main story, you can return to the game world to finish side quests and do various activities, uh, and that also optional side missions allow you to earn new suits and currency to upgrade your capabilities in various ways. You also earn XP to level up and, and earn skills, so I can officially level grind. Woo freaking who? Again, very important to me. Um, they've showcased about five villains so far with promises that there are more. Miles Morales, a uh, a character from the uh, from the comic books that becomes Spider-Man himself in an alternate universe that eventually is, I guess, joined with the mainstream Marvel universe. I haven't gotten that far in my reading yet. Um, but Miles Morales was also once confirmed to be a part of the game, but hasn't been mentioned since that I know of. They've been keeping a lot of the story under wraps, so I'm wondering if we're about to be treated to a much more expansive representation and celebration of the Spider-Man universe than we uh, have dared hope for. Either way, this is a day one purchase for me, and I can't wait to play it. 
almost every game already mentioned on my list has a lot in common with a game I've already played recently, but not this one. Dragon Quest Eleven looks to be both a return to uh, a return to and a refinement of, I should say, a classic turn-based JRPG gameplay. This formula has been slowly modified over the years, most notably by the Final Fantasy series, to the point where there are almost no AAA games that use an honest-to-goodness classic turn-based system in their JRPGs. Some have added real-time elements like an active time meter or real-time combat with tactical pause. Others have gone the opposite direction and made grid-based tactical uh, skirmish turn-based experiences, you know. Uh, the first can require too much quick thinking for me to enjoy. The second type can get bogged down in brain-burning tactics. I don't have the focus for it at the end of a long day of work and family. But Dragon Quest games stay in that sweet spot where you have to think somewhat tactically, but not haltingly so. And actions are carried out in quick animations that don't overstay their welcome and keep the flow of combat moving. And despite the fact that I normally hate bright cartoony style games, Dragon Quest plays their tone much more straight and seriously than other JRPGs. Add to that a touch of nostalgia, I confess that I have, for the original Dragon Quest or Dragon Warrior as it was in the US, and this one, this is one bright and colorful game series that I uncharacteristically do enjoy. We haven't had a Dragon Quest game on home console since the PlayStation 2 era, and while I've played a few Dragon Quest games on my DS since then, nothing compares to kicking back with a proper controller and TV screen for me. Um, now, I don't quite have blinders on. If they don't ditch save points, I can see losing patience with it. I want to be able to save whenever I want. And it's always possible that the series will hold on to some of the minor annoyances that caused me to put down Dragon Quest VI a few years ago on handheld, but Dragon Quest VIII was such a great experience for me and is loved by so many fans, I can only imagine they'll want to build on that success and use that as their... Uh, source of more recent inspiration. So I am in eager anticipation to find out if they do, as I would love to return to this all too rare kind of game experience. Okay, let me wrap up with just some rapid-fire general thoughts about E3 2018. I did watch the Devolver quote-unquote press conference. Uh, it gave me some good laughs. Maybe it will for you, too, if you don't mind some F-bombs and really, really dark, uh, gory humor. Um, but it was also, once again, a little too on the nose with some of its criticism of the games industry to make me laugh. You know, loot boxes, for example, I feel like are a little too easy a target, but it was still something I really enjoyed and one of my highlights of the week. Uh, let's go over my uh, wish list and see which ones came true and which... <laughs> Once didn't. Um, first wish, short wait times only for announced games, six months or less. Nope. Uh, Bethesda and CD Projekt Red alone uh, <laughs> announced games that who knows how far off they are. Uh, no CG trailers without gameplay right on its heels. Nope. Got a bunch of CG trailers with no gameplay. <laughs> Number three, a celebration of gaming, but without assigning more value or importance to games than they deserve, since we already have enough trouble with that ourselves as gamers. Uh, I would say overall, E3 was pretty good this year in that regard outside of EA. Uh, no surprise there. Number four, I wished for cool, memorable, surprising, entertaining moments. Well, I thought that the Star Fox reveal for Starlink on Switch was pretty cool. Uh, Sony's weird conference opener is some good water cooler chat, but nothing else really stands out to me. Number five, I wished for something legit cool that I would enjoy that would be available. Surprise! Right now! And that update for Prey was something that was really cool. I went and uh, downloaded that uh, and put it into my game, and I got back into it, and I found that I was enjoying that game again, but realized, oh yeah, yeah, this is a scary game. I'll save this for some live stream. 
when people want to see me scared. Uh, and then number six, the game design revolution that I call failure adaptivity, in which the world changes and reacts to my failure rather than sending me back in time to repeat content. And no sign that I saw of that being uh, implemented in games to any significant degree. Um, my wishes for specific games to be announced. Number one, Bioshock. Nope. Uh, number two, Singularity. Another Singularity. Nope. Number three, a single-player Justice League open-world game. Nope. Number four, Bloodstained Ritual of the Night and other Symphony of the Night clones with a 2018 release date. Nope. Number five, Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning sequel. Nope. Number six, Cyberpunk 2077. Yes! <laughs> that was cool, so I got one. Number seven, for Path of Exile to bring the Xbox user interface option to the PC version. No! And number eight, lots more Atomic Heart info and a 2018 release date. I didn't see anything about Atomic Heart uh, in the E3 materials at all. Anyway, um, this was a great E3 for me. My list of anticipated games this year is larger than any previous E3, and I have more confidence in the pedigree of the developers on that list than I've ever had before in games I look forward to after this annual event. There are at least five games on my list that I have every reason to think that I'm really going to enjoy playing, and three of those games arrive in less than six months. Not to mention... Um, the Crew 2 as well, that's going to be coming out in just a couple of weeks. Uh, so yeah, this was an unexpectedly cool E3 for me, and cool in some very unexpected ways. And yet I'm more than ready to just be done <laughs> with E3 and move on from it. Um, giving a whole work week to E3 each year is an interesting experience for me, and I think it always exposes some truth to me about the nature of entertainment. Um, all week long, these publishers and these developers are promoting what they've made. Fans are getting excited, and by the end of the week, I've embraced the hype and have a list of games that I put on my calendar and start planning my budget accordingly for. Um, but by the last couple of days of the week, even though I'm still eagerly anticipating some games that sound exciting, even though I've had a lot of fun immersing myself in the hobby... I feel kind of like this weird emptiness clinging to me, uh, a desire to kind of shake off the week and get back into work that feels more immediately purposeful. Uh, and I wonder if the author of Ecclesiastes felt something similar. After he had thrown himself into pleasure for an extended period of time, he wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, this is from the ESV, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? He, so he reached this point where laughing even seemed so out of place as to be insane behavior, and he saw that uh, his pleasure indulged in too much had become something without purpose. Uh, entertainment can be a great source of refreshment, but when we stay in it too long or give it too much importance in our thought lives, we end up not getting from it what we had hoped, and can even discover that we have wasted precious time that could have been given to fulfilling our purpose and resulting in a more lasting sense of satisfaction. Uh, it's not that entertainment is bad or without purpose. In fact, if we uh, have the means and opportunity to enjoy wealth and possessions now and then, we're encouraged to enjoy them as a gift from God, as well as find the, the joy and fulfillment that's hiding in our day-to-day uh, -day work. And we see that, I think, in Ecclesiastes 5, verses 18 through 20. But our purpose, given by our Creator, should be our aim above all. Uh, the author of Ecclesiastes summarizes his final thoughts in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, by saying, The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God 
and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. Um, above and beyond the free gift of eternal life, there is reward waiting for us in proportion to how we engage with our purpose in this life and, and absence of reward in proportion to how we don't. Um, entertainment can give us some, like some quick highs, but life lived in our intended purpose yields unimaginable rewards after this life. And in the meantime, it yields lasting hope, endurance, and fulfillment. Feedback! Feedback! Give me your thoughts on this podcast, Christian Geek Central, the YouTube channel, or anything else we're doing. What should we keep? What should we change? What should we change your mind? You'd like a potentially uninformed opinion on, because I got one of those. We want to make this show and all of Christian Geek Central as fun, as useful as we can, but I need to hear from you guys to do that. You can send an email or audio file recorded on your phone to P-A-E-T-E-R at spiritblade.com. And as a reminder, again, guys, if you'd like some help finding a good church in your area, I want to help you if I can do that. Online resources and communities are a good supplement, but by nature they can't speak to your particular situation like relationships in a local church can. The context for almost everything in the New Testament assumes that we're serving and building purposeful relationships in a local church. So whether you're in a church that lacks Bible-based intentionality or not attending any church at all, if I can help you get connected to an authentic Bible-oriented church, I want to do that. You can email me at P-A-E-T-E-R at spiritblade.com and we can try to look at some websites of churches in your area together at least as a start. All right. Um, I think that's it. The, the, the podcast is running so long, I'm not even sure if I'm going to be able to upload it successfully, so there's no DS9 Schwarmer that, uh, this week, but look for that to come back next time. As a reminder, you can find episodes 0 through 500 of this podcast archived as the Spirit Blade Underground Podcast at spiritblade.com. And next week, if God allows it, I'll share reviews of The Incredibles 2 and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Till then, Please consider supporting the work of Christian Geek Central and Spirit Blade Productions by purchasing an audio drama, leaving a donation, or becoming a Spirit Blade insider. You can get more info from our About page at spiritblade.com. Thank you again so much for making time for this show. I hope you have a great week and that you'll join me next time here on the Christian Geek Central podcast as we continue to geek out and seek the truth. Christian Geek Central Podcast is a community-supported endeavor of Spirit Blade Productions. This podcast is produced by Peter Fremson with support from the Christian Geek Central community at christiangeekcentral.com. For information about the latest entertainment and resources from Spirit Blade Productions, visit spiritblade.com. Thank you for listening.